and shine, ladies. Beauty sleeps over. Front and center. Do you understand me? In the beginning was God. All else was darkness. So God created the heavens and the earth. He divided the earth between land and sea, and these he filled with many assorted creatures. The dark, slimy creatures of the oceans God called sailors, and he dressed them accordingly. The flighty creatures of the air he called airmen, and these he clothed in uniforms which were ruffled and foul. The lower creatures of the land God called soldiers, and he gave them trousers too short, covers too long, and pockets to warm their hands. And on the seventh day, as you know, God rested. And on the eighth day, at all 500 hours, God looked down upon the earth and was not happy. God was not happy! So he thought about his labors, and in his infinite wisdom, God created a divine creature, and this he called a marine. And these marines whom God created in his own image were to be of the air, the land, and the sea. And these he gave practical fighting uniforms so that they could wage war against the forces of Satan and evil. And he gave them evening and dress uniforms so they might score with the ladies on Saturday night and impress the hell out of everybody. And at the end of the eighth day, God looked down upon the earth and saw that it was good. But was God happy? No! Because in the course of his labors, he had forgotten one thing. He did not have a marine uniform, but he thought about it and satisfied himself in knowing that, well, not everybody can be a Marine. Beep. Testing, testing. Beep. Beep. Hi, Squares, and welcome to another episode of Square Waves FM. I'm your host, Bianca, and... My co-host is Brian. That's right. I take it over to the uh, position and you're secondary to me. <laughs> Actually, co-host means that we are equal. Thank you very much. No, I said I'm the host and you're my co-host, which means that I am superior to you. It means that we are together co-hosting. Oh, whatever you say, beep. Yeah, damn right, whatever I say. I'm the co-host. That puts me ahead of you, co-host. Yeah, except alphabetically, my name comes first. Alphabetically, your IQ is lower. Hi, Square Wavers. What are you guys? Squares. Hi, Squares. Yeah, beep. Beep. Hi, guys. Thanks for joining (laughs) us again today. This will be uh, an interesting episode. We're going to be talking about UI and UI accessories. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, this is number 42. Wow, 42. The meaning of podcasting. Exactly. Yeah. The answer to everything. That's right. So, how about you start it? Okay. And uh, it seems that the birds may occasionally chime in with something to say. Aww. And I doubt that we're going to put them to sleep because Trolls isn't here. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Hi, Trolls. Uh, 
Oh, yeah. Uh, speaking of uh, trolls and uh, Darth Helmets, I uh, realized as soon as we signed off last week that I uh, said goodbye and closed up down the podcast before I asked them whether they had anything to plug. So oh, sorry about that, guys. I try to make a habit of uh, allowing anyone to that comes on the show to plug their, their goodies. So um, We only have so many outlets, dear. Don't let them uh, short-circuit it. Okay. <laughs> Sheesh. So, um... Whatever. I'm not organized. I <laughs> just wanted to mention that. But uh, check out last week's show notes where I did add a few things. I don't think Darth Helmet had anything that he wanted to plug at the time. But uh, Trolls is uh, quite the multimedia uh, prolific darling, isn't he? So go check out all of that shit that he does. Including wasted talent. Including the wasted talent. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Oh, his album Wasted Talent. I put one of his uh, songs at the end of last week's show. We enjoy that album a lot. I'm... Uh, mulling over which of those songs I would like to remix. I think I'm going to spend some time during my uh, winter break in a month or so to oh, remix one me. of those. You're going to make a, I'm going to get subjected to uh, freaking scratching and uh, remixing. But. No, I'm not going to do scratching or anything like that. I, um, I've been thinking about what instruments I want to use. That's the hardest part of composing for me. If I have instruments to use, then I can get to work with composing pretty much no problem. But... I don't have a very good repository of instruments, and I do have some VSTs, which are like virtual rack mount synthesizers, basically, that you have to configure, and that's a lot of work, too, so it takes a while until you have a usable instrument, so I always get frustrated around that point and just give up, so um, that's why I've enjoyed using, oh, I don't even know how you pronounce it, Bosca, Bosca Seal or whatever by Terry Cavanaugh, and also Monotone by Jim Leonard. Mine, no, <laughs> Both beep. of those beep. It is beep, because that's what I used to uh, compose the theme song for the podcast. I like those because you don't have to worry about instruments. They come built in with any sounds that they can make. But um, I, f I believe, yeah, a few podcasts ago in the show notes, I mentioned and I put a link to a list of Super Nintendo sound fonts. So like collections of samples from various Super Nintendo soundtracks. Mm -hmm. So I'm thinking of uh, remixing... <laughs> one of his uh, I'm thinking of remixing one of his songs using those instruments just to give it kind of a <laughs> old school feel <laughs> that's regular Nintendo actually what? that would be regular Nintendo and not Super Nintendo Super well Nintendo. actually it could be Super Nintendo if you count Super Mario All-Stars oh but I don't so screw you. Well, I do, so screw you. Screw you. <laughs> um, oh, I want to give an extra, extra special shout-out. Extra special? It is extra special. Short bus special? A, uh, yes. <laughs> it is a short bus uh, special shout-out, because it's to you. My oh, fuck you. My, my co-host, Bianca. I am not your co-host. You're my co-host now. Well, wherever the hell you are, I just want to thank oh, you for you. taking good care of me while I was sick all week. It was very sweet of you. I was under the weather. I missed two days of work and my throat's been all scratchy and I've been all crybaby demanding and stuff and I want to thank you very much for taking such lovely care of me and for making my couch for me and for <laughs> making, making me tea and all of that stuff. You've oh, been you're really nice. So thank you, sweetie. Um, and I also want to send a shout out to Sindar, also known, uh, uh, Sindar on Twitter, also known as Papaya Chemist on Pachyderm. Twitch. No, Pachyderm. Papaya Chemist. Pachyderm. <laughs> She, uh, she's a very nice girl uh, that I follow on Lady, I guess I should say. How old am I? <laughs> uh, I follow her on Twitter. She, uh, she's a customer support specialist for a game company, I believe. 
Um, and uh, she was streaming Police Quest 3. She's been doing a series of uh, Police Quest games. I think it's been called, like, How Not to Die in Police Quest or something oh, like yeah, that. Oh, yeah, that was a funny title. I like that title. It was a good title. So she was a really fun uh, Twitch streamer. It was great to watch her play Police Quest 3. And I kind of appreciated um, a lot of the time when you watch either a Twitch stream or a YouTube uh, Let's Play of an oh. adventure game. What? <laughs> oh, there's some uh, brain nitty can poop behind the uh, camera who keeps yammering the entire time. So oh, that's you can't true. appreciate the subtle nuances of the game they're playing without their snide ass retarded commentary polluting the airwaves. Well, that's that's true. <laughs> that's true. And it's less true of uh, adventure games usually because those are so uh, thick with uh, description and story and narrative and stuff. Um, but yeah, like action games and stuff, people don't shut the hell up. It's very true. Mm-hmm. And, and I have no tolerance. Course. I have no tolerance for that unless it's like Binding of Isaac or something that's short and replayable, and you've already seen it a million times. And yeah, and and someone like Cobalt Streets is doing it as they're living, and they actually are being a proper host, and not yeah. just a and not just a brain uh, queef sucking jackass. Yeah, queef sucking. So. <laughs> Yeah, Papaya Chemist didn't suck any queefs. She, uh, well, what, what she did that was interesting was, um, unlike other uh, other Let's Players or Twitch streamers who play adventure games, she didn't read out all of the dialogue uh, or the narrator. She just kind of let things go as fast as she could read it, which I sort of appreciated. It's nice to get both sides of it. Like, I enjoyed, um, I enjoyed Trolls' Let's Play of Actual Sunlight by Will O'Neill. Um, despite the fact that he was a real jackass while he played that, but uh, he did acknowledge the more serious uh, tone of it and everything. But he read it all this stuff, and I didn't mind that at all. Um, but I did appreciate uh, Papaya Chemist not reading that stuff and just kind of letting the game flow at the pace that she played it at. True enough, but uh, Will O'Neill's actual sunlight was just walls and walls of text at one point, whereas Police Quest is a little short uh, paragraph boxes, so it's more easily digestible. That's very true. That's very true. Yeah, so it's you don't have to worry so much about the reader reading at the same speed as the player. Mm-hmm. I guess like the audience reading at the same speed as the player because when it's just one short little sentence or two. Your eyes usually scan it pretty quickly regardless of uh, how fast or slow of a reader you are. It's once you get into the uh, just walls of text that you begin to notice the difference between individuals. That's right. So thanks, thank you, Papaya Chemist, a.k.a. Sindar, for... A.k.a. Pachyderm. Uh, <laughs> a.k.a. Pachyderm for keeping me company while I was sick, too. The last time I was uh, sick, I guess it was a year and a half ago yeah. or so, um, I had a good time watching Anatoly playing the Goblins games. So that, that kept me company, too. So that's a, a nice way to sort of be told a virtual story while you're laying there moaning and being phlegmy. And with your wife with her headphones on so she doesn't have to hear... Your very nasally snores as your chin is tucked into your chest. Yes. That's I mean, right. you normally snore pretty pretty bad one. It's meant it's mighty wicked. But I mean, this was something else. I thought that, that you were gonna bring down the building. <laughs> I know, I'm sorry. Yeah, when I'm sick it's really bad, I know. <laughs> Yucko. Um, oh, and before we get any further, by the way, we want to mention that we're gonna sort of break our podcast into two this week. Nothing for you guys to worry about we'll edit it all together but um we want to ma- it's uh, 11 52 eastern time on sunday 11 and all is well it was until you <laughs> until you mimicked the freaking disney movie <laughs> so um we want to make sure to catch open source uh, open crowdsource show with uh 
Trolls, Fred, Gareth, and their guest this week, Joe Mastriani. That's on in about an hour or so. Plus, it'll give me a chance to rest my throat because I'm still getting over this cold. So uh, we'll go for an hour or so, and then we'll break it, and then we'll keep going. Mm-hmm. Okay, so... Uh, <coughs> I've talked enough. Why don't you... Do you want to talk about WoW okay. for a change? <laughs> for a change. So for those of you who know who uh, listened long enough, you know that I play World of Warcraft. And you do? Yes. <sighs> we can do it without your sarcastic input. I thought you were going to give your throat a rest, so why don't you shut be, the fuck up? This show will be five minutes long without my sarcastic input. <laughs> so... This week was uh, the 11th anniversary, so I made a point of logging into all my characters so I could get my rewards. Yay! 11th anniversary rewards. 11 years. That's crazy. Oh, I know. And yes, their, their Liz's uh, subscribers have gone up and down, but they've uh, they found a way to give us good stuff. Yeah, they and, were, what, five and a half million, I think, subscribers the last time they reported it. True, but I think those numbers are going to go back up now that they're getting towards uh, patch 7.0. Right now, we're at like 6.2 point something. I think they're going to keep going down until... They usually keep going down until uh, the new expansion is out, and then they go up for a couple of months and then go back down again. Unless there's a really major uh, change. And I think (coughs) 6.2 is pretty major. But anyways, Mm. so... This week, they introduced a new patch, which, in addition to any, uh, the anniversary stuff, brought in Valor. Not Valor, as most of us remember from the gate days of uh, Wrath of the Lich King, but Valor more in the lines of what we saw in Pandaria, where we could upgrade gear. So, yay, I've been able to upgrade, upgrade a few of my crappier pieces. So is it... And, and on the plus side, it means that all the mythic raiders are coming down and uh, wallowing the pits with uh, with the assholes of LFR, which includes people like me who are too lazy to actually do real raiding. Since all the good raiding was back in uh, Wrath of the Lich King and it died when we no longer needed uh, groups of 10 or 25 to take down pretty, pretty Prince Boy Arthas. <laughs> <laughs> right. So what else is good about the uh, anniversary? Well... We got a couple, so you're gonna be you know, from that. The anniversary is interesting because you're walking around in your in a regular outpost, and someone's like, "Oh, I see you, boy!" And suddenly you turn into a gnoll or a murloc because everyone gets these little friggin' uh, transformation wands. Oh, those are cute. Yeah, and you everyone gets a special costume with fifty charges, meaning you can use it fifty times, and you which and allows you to turn into Edwin Van Cleef, who unfortunately was removed from the game when. Uh, the Dead Mines was revamped, and uh, he was removed at the final boss and replaced with his daughter, Vanessa Van Cleef. So if you play the heroic version, it's Vanessa that you face off against. And that is a very interesting fight. I, I kind of wish they put heroic Dead Mines into the time-walking dungeon that they brought back for Cataclysm, but instead they brought back all the crappy ones. And- no, but you know what would happen. Mm-hmm. What happens, well, you were, you were complaining, I know. The, the, so why don't you tell people what time-walking means? Okay, for those of you who are unfamiliar with time-walking, it means that... Uh, you can you essentially have the ability to go back that uh, Blizz has allowed us to go back and do the dungeon that used to be challenging, and it, so it's actually still challenging. So like there used to be maximum level content, but now that the level cap is raised, the these old dungeons that used to take they used to be difficult for five people. You can like blow Base your nose roll. on as one person. Yeah. yeah. So now we actually need they brought it back as a challenge. So every week there's a new type of uh, challenge. So there's four time walking challenges: Burning Crusade, um, <coughs> Wrath of the Lich King, 
and oh three and uh, now cataclysm so the different expansion packs yes they used to have a level cap but now we're beyond that level cap mm -hmm. so then so unfortunately as i pointed out to brian a lot of there's players who have never seen the cataclysm content and just had no idea how to deal with the mechanics and were face where they're completely smashing everything as a faceful and, and not trapping Oh, it was just brutal trying to do Grim Batal. So basically you have to be – when we did these dungeons originally, we failed a whole bunch. And these are usually – this is usually content that you team up with a bunch of random people to do. And if anyone is not very good or if anyone is not familiar, then everyone is going to fail. So mm -hmm. over time, the, whole, the community at large gets good at this stuff. And so I think your point is that now that we have these time-walking – events where the old content becomes a, yeah. a challenge again. People assume that they can just face roll the way they could the current content. Stop saying face roll. <laughs> what an annoying, that's an annoying saying. Anyway. I know, but that's what it is for the most part. I mean, okay, fine keyboard smashing. Okay, there you go. <laughs> right, so people think that they can just get through it easily without no without knowing what to do when in fact it takes... Talent and skill and familiarity and all this stuff to get yeah, through it. So you're you want this friggin' dead mines uh, <coughs> yes, dungeons again, but that was a really hard one. There's lots of mechanics. Yeah, that one had all sorts of traps. It was fun. Once you figured it out, it was a fun it was a fun boss. Once you figured it out. And this is only gonna be on for a week. Mm -hmm. And only once every month or two. So yeah. no one's gonna know how to do it and it's gonna be frustrating. Yeah, and nobody remembered how to do Grim Batal and I'm a crappy DPS. I'm a freaking boomkin. Blizz hates boomkins, and so I'm one of the most fucking nerfed DPS there is. And yet, I managed to survive and out-DPS everybody just by knowing how to dodge this one boss. And I'm like, I looked around, I'm like, everyone else, including the tank who I res, battle res during combat, is dead. Uh, that was really frustrating. Everybody but me died on every boss fight. The only time I died on a boss fight was after everybody was dead and the dragon breathed on me and I couldn't dodge it. Ugh, the more you complain about this game, the more I want to play it again. <laughs> so, but the uh, but of course I'm punishing myself by doing this because what, because when you do the time walking quest, there's oh there's a quest giver in your garrison who gives you a ton of val who gives you valor. Uh, time walking badges, which are good for any, um, for, which are good for gear and toys, and you get uh, a, a, a an armor cache for the most recent uh, for the uh, which is the equivalent of getting a piece of gear from Hellfire Citadel. So naturally, I punish myself just to get this, and it's five dungeons. Can you summarize that? That was like <laughs> that was like twelve sentences of pure jargon. <laughs> Basically, you get a bunch of really awesome rewards, but you suffer for it. Okay. <laughs> and so going back to the, the other rewards, there is a um, – it's an award based on a legendary that's only equipable by some types of classes, and it's the uh, Thunder Fury Blessed Blade of the Windseeker. Oh, right. So this is the – this is this, like, awesome two-pronged enormous sword that with has lightning, lightning shooting out of it. Mm -hmm. And when you run or, like, even look in another direction, you get this awesome trail of lightning. And if you're flying, it's even better. Oh, that's cool. So now there's a cosmetic version? Yeah, and it's um, it's got five charges, meaning you can use it five times. And it's called the Inflatable Thunder Fury Blessed Blade of the Windseeker. Oh, that's cute. That's and the first time on. you use it, gets you a feat of strength achievement. Oh, that's cool. I'm like, 
nice. <laughs> I was happy. And now I've been saving it for when the anniversary is long over and everyone else has used it. And then I can just pop it and run around like a huge jackass. In fact, the first time I used it on a character, it didn't quite work out because I used it on my hunter. And so I have this huge blade on my back over top, laid over my bow and arrow. <laughs> oh, that's funny. It's not like before, at least, where it would replace... Your bow and arrow. Yeah. So uh, Blizz actually uh, made a cosmetic change to allow those to display properly. And in some cases, if you were dual wielding, as uh, some warriors and uh, and uh, death knights do, you got both. You got you got to dual wield this two thing. This thing. Uh, oh, that's awesome. Yeah, that was really cool. Yeah, yeah. The only thing better than one huge lightning sword is two. Exactly. You know. Yep. So that was pretty fun. Oh, and there's also a. There's it's, also the uh, extra experience. Oh yeah, so bonus that you this get. This is a good if you want to reroll a new tune. The anniversary is the time to do it because you have heirlooms and this bonus. So I guess mm -hmm. you and I both though we've enjoyed making a new character. Like now, if you've if you've uh, got a maximum level character, then you have the opportunity to buy these items called heirlooms, and they will give you more experience on a new character. Mm -hmm. Like it, it'll multiply your experience so that you can level up faster. But you and I. <clears throat> have both really enjoyed not using those things and making a new character and just playing the game as slowly as possible. Yes, unfortunately, you don't want to do that in a dungeon because people are just... <clears throat> right, if you're going to do dungeons, those heirlooms give you really high stats and they make you... It used to be that they gave you an advantage, but now it just kind of equalizes you because everybody else uses these heirlooms as well. It's basically the equivalent of the best gear you could possibly get while you're leveling up so that you don't have to slow yourself down managing that stuff. But I appreciate that they're optional. Because I do enjoy leveling up slowly and enjoying all the content and all the quests and all that. Yeah, I have a uh, hunter who's been sitting at level 55 for a while because I just wanted to gain some rested experience. And so she has nothing but uh, quest gear on. And it's pretty interesting. And what's and what's even more fun is that it matches because it's all prop. It's a it's all the uh, gear from the uh, relevant zone. And as I replace the different pieces, it once again comes back and it matches. It's really nice mm -hmm. to have all matching gear that looks connected. If you've been doing all, if you do all the quests in the zone, you eventually replace all your uh, gear so everything in the slot matches the style of the zone. Wow! 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 Yep, so... Um, Is that all the wow? Yep, that's, that's all the wow. too much wow. Well, you're the one who brought it up. Yeah, I guess so. Well, I didn't think you were going to go on for 10 minutes. <laughs> yeah, well, you gave me an opening. Good. And at least Darth well, Helmet wasn't opening. here, because otherwise we could have gone on. Oh, yeah, Darth Helmet, we got to have... Or Darth Helmet, we got to have you back on the show to talk about wow sometime. Mm -hmm. Yep, and uh, <laughs> he had tweeted us to ask us our... Um, we like our... Uh, for our IDs. I gave I had direct message Tim Mines. Oh, did he? Yeah. Oh, I missed that. Oh, I feel badly. Sorry, Darth Helmet. We'll, uh, I'll, I'll send you mine as well. A real ID is what you can use to. Um, it's like a global friend request, sort of. Like in a in a in WoW, you can send someone the name of your character, and then that character will be on the friends list, and you'll pop up whenever you're logged in with that character in that game. But the real ID means that you send the person your email address, I think, or your Blizzard username, and then there's a client where you can keep the Blizzard launcher open at all times, and there's an instant messenger. And you can keep in touch that way. Or if you're playing any Blizzard game, for example, one person can be playing WoW and the other person can be playing Diablo. And you can chat with each other in-game mm -hmm. if you've shared your real ID. So I will gladly send mine. Yeah, for example, we have a friend who used to play WoW with us back in the days of Wrath of the Lich King. But he since ventured on to StarCraft. But we can uh, still uh, talk across a uh, platform, across yeah. game. 
when he's playing StarCraft and one of us is playing World of Warcraft, which is nice. Yeah, so, cool. Darth, I sent you mine, and you'll see it in your direct message if you haven't already. Yeah, sorry, dude. I'll send you mine. I missed that. <clears throat> I've been too busy being dead all week. <laughs> <clears throat> um, I'm going to get a glass of water. Pardon me. You want okay. anything, hun? No, but uh, you can take this and... Uh, we filled it for me. Yeah. <laughs> okay, let's see what else. Do I have anything else to talk about? Well, just what I played. And, uh, well, Brian's going to talk for a while about a bunch of stupid crap that uh, I know nothing about. But, yeah, speaking of Brian, he tried to, he decided that he wanted to break his phone again this week. Let's see. Breaking his phone usually means rooting it, crying, and having me entertain his butt crack. Well, he, uh, <laughs> does whatever he wants with it with his Nexus root kit so he can so he can be a big uh, big shot hacker and pretend that he knows all this stuff when in fact he's sitting there with his fingers crossed crying about oh my phone is broken my phone is broken please entertain my butt crack I'm so bored keep crying <laughs> I'm still getting water <laughs> yeah he's getting water and by water we mean he's getting a glass that he can cry into <laughs> okay, that's quite enough out of you. You can shut your cry now. All right. Beep. Beep. Okay. Hi, I'm back, guys. Hope you didn't miss me. Nope. All right. Well, she was talking about me crying about my phone, so why don't I cry about my phone a little bit? <laughs> um. So yeah, as Bianca mentioned, I love to hack around with my with my LG Nexus Five. Not a big fan of LG because of the performance of this phone overall and the reliability of it. But in the next phone I get, well, I, I want to stick to the Nexus line of Google phones, of Android phones, just because they're the most hackable. They're the ones that come with the vanilla version of the operating system as opposed to um, Samsung or even LG or um, any of the other manufacturers. HTC, they usually have like a skinned version with uninstallable apps and a bunch of bloat and clutter that I don't care about. All I want is the stock Android experience. So <clears throat> the Nexus phones... Um, come that way, and they also allow you to like unlock the bootloader and put on custom operating systems or <clears throat> to uh, manually update your phone or to root it or to hack around with it, stuff like that. I like to do that kind of stuff. It's, uh, it's a little risky, I guess, but uh, I, haven't, uh, I haven't screwed myself too badly. So um, Android Marshmallow uh, OS version 6.0 came out about a month ago, I guess now, and I'm enjoying it a lot. It's like... Not heads and shoulders, a hell of a lot better than Android 5.0, a lollipop, but... Lollipop, lollipop. Shut up, woman. Oh, I don't care about your song. Go go back to Hades, you you, you demon. <laughs> um, uh, the, what I like most, I guess I mentioned this already uh, on a previous week, but what I like most about the new uh, Marshmallow OS, <laughs> shut up, woman, <laughs> is the, the uh, super low-powered idle mode which uh preserves your battery while your phone is off and you haven't touched it for a while so like while i'm sleeping instead of a third of my battery draining it'll be five percent instead that's really nice um so a couple of uh no just one i guess one little minor security update has come out <clears throat> since then it was out i guess about a week or two ago and my usual all right before that yeah so um we, we root our phones just for the sole purpose, really, of running an ad blocker because it uh, suppresses ads from being shown either on websites or even in apps. So that's really nice. Ad-supported uh, apps, sorry, but uh, we're, we're uh, pilfering your content by enjoying the app and seeing no ads. So that's always nice. And it blocks 
not only the banner ads, but also like videos and other really interstitial, annoying uh, interruptions. So um, it took some doing for me to figure out how to root the Marshmallow OS just because it was brand new and most people hadn't, uh, nobody had created uh, simple tools for it yet. So I had to um, run the individual commands myself from the command line. Um, and I figured that out with some difficulty. I did do it, and then I did Bianca's too. The agreement is that I'll hack around and play around on my phone until I know exactly what I'm doing, and uh, I uh, unlock it and root it, and then once uh, I'm comfortable with it, then I'll do Bianca's when I'm good and ready. Mm-hmm. So a security update came out. Uh, I don't know if it's 5.0.1 or something like that. Maybe not even. <clears throat> and um, there's still no simple way to root it. I'm, I'm distracted by Bianca petting her Game of Thrones book. Woman, settle the shit down. I can't help it. I got another thousand pages of Game of Thrones wonderfulness. I just finished the first book because I was desperate while I wait for season six to come out. And now I have Clash of Kings. Another thousand pages of fiction excellence. We'll stop stroking the king. <laughs> wait a minute. I take it back. Okay, so if what the hell was I talking about? You're distracting me. Stop being a dork. <laughs> You're um, talking about uh, rooting your phone and getting rid of ads. Okay. So anyway, I guess I, I had trouble rooting my phone this time but, uh, since the security update came out. And um, the tool that I usually use, uh, Wugfresh Nexus Toolkit. Wugfresh is the name of the guy who makes it. I love Nexus Root Toolkit. It's specifically for Nexus phones and... It's basically like a menu, uh, like a clickable menu, and if you click an option, it gives you a bunch of text and uh, documentation and prompts around the series of commands that are kind of done in a batch file. So instead of you having to type all these commands yourself, it does them for you in order, but between each command, it tells you, here's what it's about to do, here's what you need to do, are you sure, yes or no, here's what you should have done before you say yes. Very handy stuff, and it's very well-researched and very convenient. Um... Ugh, my brain is, like, not working right today. Anyway. When did your I, brain ever work, Joy? Right? I don't know. It usually works better than it does today. <laughs> so, uh, whatever. I uh, fi- I figured out the hard way how to root my phone. It was very, very difficult. I decided not to root Bianca's just because I didn't have it down to a science. And just this past week, uh, this past couple of days, a new version of uh, Nexus Root Toolkit came out that had this security updates built in with all the proper automated root stuff. So I was able to root our phones again. Yay. Yay. <clears throat> so I do recommend checking out the Nexus phones. They're usually, like, not super top of the line, but they're close to. The new uh, Nexus 6P looks pretty sweet. That's, like, the six-inch uh, phablet-style phone, and that's, like, pretty deluxe-looking from what I can see. Yeah. I might get one of those next. We'll see. Uh, I, got I another think year. my phone's as big as I need it to be. Any bigger, and I might as well just carry my tablet with me. Yeah, I was skeptical about large phones, but my mom has the iPhone 6 Plus or whatever True, it's called. True, but she also has her massive woman bag with her. I mean, that thing's humongous. Yeah, but... Wouldn't that what, mean, mean, what are you going to stick it in? What pocket? Your pockets are not that deep. Yeah, they'll be big enough. They'll be big enough. I, I don't know. It looks good to me. I might give it a try. I'll, uh, I'll try to get it in my hands before I decide on it. But my mom likes her humongous phone. I thought it would be too big for her, but she likes it even better than her last phone. So maybe I'll give it a try. Geriatric special, really. I mean, nice big phone with big fonts for those old eyes. I have old eyes. How old am I? I'm 37 years old, man. I'm old. You're not old until you hit 40, bitch. 
Well, I'm almost 40, so bitch yourself. Um, okay, something else phone-related. I was looking forward for the longest time. I learned recently about something called the exposed framework, which is a means of installing OS root-level mods on your Android phone. So you have to have a rooted Android in order to install exposed framework. So you install the exposed framework, and then it gives you a huge list of uh, user, like community-created mods, each of which does like a small hack or a small modification of the OS and the way that it behaves. So that sounded really cool to me. What sounded the best to me was that it lets you modify the stock Android um, home screen. What's it called? The stock Android launcher. I think it's called the Google Now launcher. So the launch, a launcher is basically um, like when you're at your home screen, it gives you a bunch of icons on the screen. You can put widgets and clocks on the screen and other things like that. It controls like the uh, uh, the app drawer. So when you look to see your list of apps, what that looks like. <clears throat> and uh, there's also gestures and shortcuts and other uh, hackable little things like that. So the, the Google Now launcher is really no frills. It's fast and responsive, but it has very few configuration options, if any at all. And that stupid search bar, which takes up most of your screen. Yeah, that's right. By default, you have to have a Google search bar on the front of your on, the, on your home screen of your phone, which basically is big enough to fit another four icons or another uh, row of widget information or something. It's wasted space. Especially, and you can't change the grid configuration of it. With Yeah, that's right. With, with third-party launchers, you can say, I want five icons by seven icons or something on my home screen, whereas the Google Now launcher, it's pre-programmed based on the... I think it's based on the model of phone you have, or maybe it's based on the size and resolution or something. Yeah, but it's something only like that. Four by four icons, yeah. I think. And they also have really thick margins, whereas with the, an, a third-party OS, you can adjust your margins so you have no margins or very thin margins. You can also remove the uh, bottom toolbar so you don't have to deal with it. And I just, I like it too for that reason. I'm down to one screen and it's all I need. It's quite efficient. Well, yeah, so you, what you like is Apex Launcher, right? Yeah. Yeah, I like, I like Apex Launcher, too, and that's what I'd been using. It's very similar to the stock launcher, but it's very highly customizable and configurable. Uh, one thing that I enjoy is uh, the gestures. So, for example, usually there's a button on your home screen that shows you your list of apps. I remove that button, and instead I swipe up on my home screen, and that shows me my list of apps. That means I have one button fewer on my home screen, and I don't have to tap in a certain area. I can just swipe up from anywhere on my home screen, and it shows me my list of apps. So it's very intuitive and easy to use. You don't even have to think about it. So like I said, the, the stock Google Launcher doesn't let you do any of that stuff, but if you install the exposed framework, um, it comes with hacks for the stock Google Launcher that lets you customize it the way you like. So <clears throat> exposed framework wasn't available for Marshmallow until a few days ago, so about a, a month after Marshmallow came out. And I gave it a try. I was really excited to give it a try. Um, gave it a try. I installed it with a little bit of difficulty and didn't really impress me that much. I guess mostly because – I don't know if it's because uh, we only very recently um, upgraded to Marshmallow and all the compatibility for Exposed was only recently uh, enabled. But a lot of the mods hadn't caught up yet and didn't work yet, although they were still on the list of available working uh, mods. So I don't really want to have to deal with stuff like that. I don't want little bits and pieces of, uh, of an experience that I've customized uh, mod by mod. 
I don't want some to work and others not to and have to worry about updating a bunch of mods. Maybe it updates automatically, but even so, I'd rather just stick with a single launcher that's updated monolithically. Like if they, they, they just release a new version and then all the new features are stable and tested and ready to go. Yeah, that's always a nice thing. Yeah. A year or two ago when I was really into the modding and hacking around on my phone, I would have tolerated that much effort. But nowadays I just do some customization and just let it go. Yeah, I think the only modding I really do outside of that with that is my Zuber widget, and I have multiple things on screen independent of each other so I can lay it out the way I want. Mm. Yeah, we love the Zuber widget. Zuber is like a customizable widget. So a widget in Android parlance is instead of just having to put icons on your home screen, you can have this little applet that uh, runs a bit of code, and it's basically the equivalent of giving you, it just gives you a little bit of information that you would otherwise have to pull out of an app by launching the app and looking for it. So for example, there are weather widgets, which just show you the current weather or the weather trend or the conditions or forecast or whatever. Um, It can show you that right on the home screen in a widget, uh, instead of having to open up the weather app and maybe tapping a button or two and getting that information. So widgets are really nice. So the Zuper widget is... um, it's like a framework where you can take different textual variables and uh, have them pull some information from your system or from an app and display it uh, graphically however you want to, and you put that on your home screen. So, for example, my Zuper widget, I should put a, I'll put a screenshot of my uh, home screen. Why don't we both put a screenshot of our home screen? I just uploaded mine to uh, Google Photos, so I'll get it right now. Thank you. I'll do that too. <clears throat> so, I configured my Zuper widget, for example, to show. Um, a big clock showing the current time. I have the current weather in a smaller font, but still pretty big. And under that, I have the conditions, which are cloudy, and then the high and low temperature for the day. And on the right, I have the current condition cloudy as an icon, so it shows like a sun peeking behind a cloud. And underneath that, I show, I, I pull variables from my calendar, which show uh, my next three appointments. So for each appointment, it says start time, hyphen, finish time, then it shows the day of the week that that occurs. And then under that, in a small font, I have the title of that uh, of that calendar item. And under that, in the same size font, I have the location, if I've entered that in in my calendar. So that's really handy while I'm at work, because it means that I can uh, just glance at the home screen of my phone to see what's on my agenda. And if I have a meeting in three minutes, what room do I have to walk to without having to open up my calendar and scroll to that appointment and tap the appointment and then look for the location. Mm-hmm. So Zuper's awesome. Yep. I went a different route. I have, I actually, I created a separate element for my date. And once I tap that date, it brings up my, my agenda. So I can, uh, I keep my screen uncluttered <coughs> in that way. And so instead, if I want to see the, uh, my agenda, I tap, and it puts me right at where I need to be in terms of time. In fact, I can see that in a short while, Open Crowdsource is going to be on, and we can go when we can go bug them on IRC. Yay! <coughs> so are we going to get them to do yaks or tubas? Both. <laughs> um, I think that's all the boring shit that I put on the agenda. Um, all right, the boring shit. <laughs> that's the boring shit. Why don't we talk about what we've played this week, and then we'll take a break to watch uh, okay. Open Crowdsource, and then we'll come back with the main topic. Okay, you go first. I go first. Mm. Okay, so um, <clears throat> after chatting with uh, Trolls and Darth Helmet, 
last week, we talked about games that we hate, and I talked about a game that most people hate but that I quite enjoyed, and that game is Phantasmagoria. So I did a playthrough of that this week. And it's uh, it's like, okay, you know. My um, rose-tinted glasses were, I guess, a little bit tinted more than they deserve to be, but I played through it, and I don't despise it. Um, having played that game a few times, I'm a little bit tired of the fact that you really don't... Like, you, you, there's one other location outside of your spooky house, and that's the town, and a few little areas in and around the town. Um, otherwise, it feels like you don't really go to a whole lot of locations. And I mean, there's a lot of different rooms, and there's multiple views of individual rooms that you get to walk around in. Maybe it's because I played it like a good three or four times or so now. But I had a pretty good time with the game, honestly, for the first six days. Uh, it's a seven chapter or seven, six chapters. It's a seven chapter game. The seventh chapter is basically a little more than like Dragon's Lair quick time events where you have this like chase sequence and you have to click the right thing at the right time or click the right item on the right thing. And I don't really find it very fun, honestly. I didn't have the, to the, the tolerance at all for it this time. I got to day seven. <clears throat> I failed a few times. And I just said, fuck it. I went to YouTube and I watched a Let's Play and I just watched the Chapter 7 without having to worry about that stuff. Um, somebody had a great Let's Play. Let me put this in the show notes so I remember to link to it. They had a fantastic Let's Play of Phantasmagoria. It's about four hours long or maybe three. Just playing through the game from start to finish and you can watch it like a movie with no other commentary or anything. Homesker. <laughs> oh, thank you for that. Uh, let's play... Phantasmagoria. <clears throat> so that might be a good way to uh, to uh, refresh your nostalgia if you don't really want to play the game, and I wouldn't uh, blame you if you didn't want to play it. There's just some ridiculous and stupid things in that game. But oh, overall, that stupid shirt of hers. That the one thing that will is forever burned into my brain is that fucking orange shirt. I hate that shirt. It makes me so angry. <laughs> oh, there's kind of an interesting write-up on Wikipedia about people's costumes actually in that game. Because a lot of that game, some of the some of the criticism of that game is that the actors had to interact with props, not with the actual things that you see them touching in the scene. It was just done on a blue screen, and then they added uh, CGI after the fact. It was hard on the actors. Shut up, bird. <laughs> it was tough on the actors because they have to. You quite finished there, Maxie? No, I think she wants her two cents. <laughs> is that it, Maxie? I think she's done. What a sweet birdie. Mm -hmm. um, it was tough on the actors because they had to kind of pantomime things and pretend that they were opening or closing a door or lifting a thing. <laughs> Sheesh. But it meant that they didn't have to have quite as much of a prop budget or a location budget, stuff like that. Jeez, birds. You're full of freaking bird beans today. Um, so uh, regarding the costumes, because so much of the game was blue screened, they had to be very careful with the colors that they would wear on their clothes. Because if you wear the wrong color, if it's any shade that resembles uh, the green screen or blue screen, I don't know. I don't think anybody wears blue or green of any shade because if you wear that in front of a green screen, there's a possibility that, you're, that that piece of clothing will become transparent. <laughs> and you'll have, be a floating head. Yeah, you'll have no ass. <laughs> so a big part of the game is looking at the protagonist's ass. And, of course, at her, at her chest. So that's why she wears the orange shirt, so that her chest is not omitted. <sighs> Jeez, both of our birds are green. Can we put them in front of a green screen and make them disappear? <laughs> Little dorks. 
you 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 do the next one. What do you play this week? Well, let's see. I uh, I started Golden Wake for a while ago. I had put it down for a couple of weeks because I got distracted by other games, and so I finished it this week. <coughs> As I uh, tweeted to uh, Franny, I like the story. Hi, I Franny. <laughs> I like the story. The characters were good. The only thing I hated, and I think it was a uh, steaming pile of horse manure, was the whole airplane puzzle. That was so obnoxious. The mechanics just were not the best. That's me being as nice as I possibly can. Oh, I think a few people just like that. Who the hell is calling you? Ooh, I think I got to take this. Okay. Sorry, pausing the podcast. So, getting back to the puzzle, it was it made enough sense. It, the biggest problem was the responsiveness of the uh, of pushing the button. The button didn't seem there was like a time delay between when you felt like you're pressing the button and when the uh, car would move. It, and the buttons weren't properly labeled, so I didn't know if I was going forward or back. And it just made absolutely no sense and was. And utterly well, it made sense. It was just trial and error, right? It made sense once you knew what everything was, but too much trial and error for a puzzle that required you to uh, move in a certain sequence. Well, I think I think the most flawed thing with that puzzle is just that it's timed. And, I mean, you get infinite retries as far as I know, right? But you have to do a certain sequence of events Within a certain amount of time, but that, it's not immediately obvious that you're going to be. It's going to be a timed thing. No, it's gonna, not. But you can fail without consequence in that, right? Because you can try over and over. This is not a Sierra game where you die in this in, in horrible way, number five thousand six hundred and twelve. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And I hope you saved recently. <laughs> so I know what you mean. Um, I didn't. I failed that that puzzle a few more than a few times. I think when I tried it as well, but I sort of got it. Um. I uh, I guess if I guess what 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 could be can, what could be perceived as wrong with that puzzle is that it's you haven't played full throttle. You really need to play full throttle. Um, full throttle um, by uh, Tim Schafer and Lucas Arts, a phenomenally good game. Um, it has it has a somewhat maligned sequence known as the old mine road, which is where. You're on your motorcycle. Oh, yeah, you got your chain. You're swinging it over your head, and you have to hit the uh, guys. Exactly. So you beat somebody with your weapon, and they give you another weapon. And then you'll fight a bunch of other guys, and you'll either beat them or you'll die. Or not die, but you'll fall off your bike and get back on it again. Mm -hmm. And each enemy can only be beaten with a certain weapon. Mm -hmm. Or there's some enemies that can only be beaten with a certain weapon. And as you drive around Old Mine Road, there's no guarantee of that enemy coming back within the next minute or two or three or four. So you spend a lot of time waiting for a certain enemy to come up and you try to beat him with one weapon and you fail and you're not sure whether you failed because you used the wrong weapon or because you're using the right weapon with the wrong timing. So it looks like a combat sequence or an action sequence when in fact it's just a puzzle that can be solved in a, uh, in a right way. It must be solved in the right way. Mm. So, <clears throat> That's what this puzzle reminded me of in A Golden Wake. And I found it a lot less stressful than the old Mine Road, personally. I guess just because you could try it again right away. You just try a different thing each time until you get it. And once you've gotten it, it makes sense, but it's not really immediately apparent what you have to do. I really didn't mind it that much. And when, what you say about the controls, like, 
you click left and you go left. I guess it's confusing that there's up and down arrows, and those mean they don't really mean that you go faster or slower. It just kind of puts you further ahead yeah, or behind. Yeah, and there are two icons that don't even look like anything, and those are the ones that move you. I or have to, I think that just the icon. Is that the one to open your roof? No, I think that was a different icon. They were not well labeled, and it made everything mm. extremely confusing. You got stressed out in that one because. By the time you see the X, the X went down, and once the X went down, it meant that you were screwed. You couldn't do anything. And so there was no way to know where to even move because there was no shadow. No, there was nothing that gave you any indication of where you needed to go. In other mm. words, you had to fail. The puzzle made you fail in order to pass it. That's a good way to put it, actually. Which is which was frustrating because, you know, the puzzles shouldn't make you fail in order to get it. They should be there to challenge you. And if you get it the first time, good. If not, fine. But they shouldn't make you fail in order to get it. That's fair criticism. Because it was almost like you had to fail each segment in order to do the whole thing in one go. Right. Which was frustrating. By the time I got to the end, I just... I've never hated a puzzle as much. Really? Well... That one? I didn't think it was that bad. You thought it was that bad? It's the worst puzzle you've done? Well, not the worst I've done, but it's... I've done some worse ones, like the sliding ones, and, of course, the horrible crack in, crap in, or, in Dracula Origins. Cause, oh, yeah, I didn't really get to speak about that one. I can't believe I finished that piece of garbage. That game was so fucking horrible. Which one was that? Was Dracula that a- Origins. Oh, you, you're like, why are you playing this? The story is stupid. The puzzles are retarded. Oh, that's one of your click the shit? Oh, no, this wasn't even click the shit. This was something I bought at Gamerama used. Oh. I don't even remember. All I know is it had a stupid story and... What kind of a game is it? It was um, not a point-and-click adventure, but it was close to it. Was it like one of those do-this-puzzle-do-that-puzzle kind of a games? Yeah. Okay, I hate it already. <laughs> and it's one of those like swooning-in-love, <laughs> uh, uh, ditzy female protagonist ones oh no she had to defeat him and uh, didn't want and uh, had to do it before you know a certain amount of time ran out oh okay. but it was it was stupid that's all i can say okay but yeah i hated that puzzle but not as much as you know your uh sliding brick puzzle such as the, you know the one gate you know when you play broken sword and mm-hmm. you come to the sewer it's like the one it's like oh no you can't just lock it with a key and you're the only one who can open the stupid sewer in all of paris oh yeah ben oh. and francisco have uh Thoroughly uh, crucified the game, the, the updated version of the game for that, that puzzle. And didn't we have an updated game of the puzzle? Didn't we play it on the, on the uh, DS? Yeah. And I think I have some version of it on Steam as well. I haven't touched it yet. Uh, yeah. Okay. Me too. Or on GOG, I forget. Yeah, one of those. Do I have it. So let's see, what else have I played? No, it's my turn now. Okay, fine. It's your turn. <laughs> we're we're going to alternate, douche Ah, I played a really cool one. I hadn't heard of this uh, uh, at all, but I got it on a whim. It's called Emily is Away. Free on Steam. Free on Steam, yes. Um, Putting that in the show notes. Emily is Away. This, it reminded me a lot of a Christine Love game. It reminded me a lot of uh, Digital Love Story. It's, I guess you'd call it a visual novel, but the whole game is just kind of you looking at a chat, instant messaging chat window. And you have conversations with this girl, Emily, um, you, you're uh, recently graduated high school and you have short conversations a little bit like each year that you're in college. So it ends when you graduate college. Um, you have a few different options of uh, ways that you can answer the questions, one, two, or three. 
And uh, based on what you answer, it sounds like you get a different ending. I've only played it once. It took about 20 minutes, 23 minutes or so. It was time very well spent, and I enjoyed it a lot. <coughs> uh, the interface is really fun. And this is, uh, this is uh, appropriate to talk about with today's uh, topic as well, which is UIs. So it has this great gimmick. The best gimmick, I guess, because it's, it kind of resembles uh, AOL Instant Messenger, which I never used, but I'm familiar enough with to uh, oh, appreciate totally the like reference. It. it really looked like it. It sounded like it. It had the same sound effects. You can choose your little uh, avatar and stuff in the corner of your, of your window. <clears throat> so you press one, two, or three to choose which of the things you want to say. But it doesn't just appear in your chat window. You have to mash your keyboard and you type any keys whatsoever. And that makes the correct keys appear in the window. I was wondering really why you were doing that. I'm going, why are you mashing your keyboard? <coughs> this looks retarded. It's, 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 a, it's a silly idea, but it's very funny. It's, it's really amusing. Yeah. I didn't mind at all. I thought it was very cute. It's, now that I now that I understand why you're doing it, it does sound cute. But at the time, I'm, I was really perplexed at what <laughs> you were doing. It made no sense to me. I thought you were just being an asshole. Oh, understandably. Like, no, that's <laughs> the keyboard. It requires you to be an asshole, so <laughs> I, I I fit right in. So it was great. Um, uh, it's um, what else do I say about it? Really, um, it also so the interface, right? It mimics like Windows XP. It looks like Windows XP, but kind of blocky and pixelated and caricatured. Yeah, that's the first thing I thought. I'm like, it looks like... I didn't think actually of AOL. I thought of Microsoft Instant Messenger from back in the day. It looks like all of those things. They all look pretty much the same, right? Mm -hmm. It really looked more like MSN in Windows XP. I think it was... Well, I think the colors and the sounds are from AOL, mm. I believe. So it just kind of harkens back to another time, and it has references to uh, the uh, was it the 90s? Yeah, to the 90s and the early 2000s, I think. Um, go play it. It's great. Um, it's free of charge. Like I said, it's only about 20 minutes long. I think listeners of this podcast who are already into games with story and adventure games and stuff like that, I think you'll get a really good smile out of it. So uh, kudos to the developer of that game. I'm sorry, I don't remember his name. But uh, he just put it out, and it's well worth your time. Go check it out. All right, you take one. Ah, so ah, you probably <laughs> heard me talking earlier about uh, Game of Thrones. Naturally, I'm a huge fan. And I love the Game of Thrones uh, Telltale game. So this week, episode six, the final episode of this came out. So I was ecstatic. To oh, go six, really? Yeah, there were six episodes. <laughs> Most other Telltale games are like four or five episodes. This one was six. That's cool. That's uh, a lot of content. Yeah, it is. And for those of you who are interested in this, it doesn't follow the main characters that you typically see in the, in the show. You They, they do make um, appearances, Cersei, Tyrion... All those do appear, but you play either Marjorie, one, no, Mira, one of Marjorie's handmaidens. For those of you who know the show, Marjorie is the who is Joffrey's betrothed, later Tommen's betrothed, and so her handmaiden Mira Forrester is uh, one of the people you play. Another one you play, you play also Roderick Forrester, or um, let's see, then there's Asher Forrester and uh, Garrett Tuttle. Basically, you played four different protagonists, and the game story is broken up much in the same way the books and show are. So it's different segments, but yeah, and once and like Walking Dead, and um, 
Borderlands or whatever, and you do get the, a lot of dialogue choices, and there are a few action sequences. This one's interesting because the, the action sequences are well, act, are well done, so you don't feel like they're particular. They're not as clunky as they were in uh, Walking Dead. Telltale has actually come a long way since they uh, did the Walking Dead action sequences. These ones were a lot smoother and a lot easier to get through, even though they tend to be a little longer. And your dialogue choices actually do feel quite meaningful. I won't tell you anything about the story, other than it is a Game of Thrones story. People are going to die. So, stabbing and fucking? Exactly. Stabbing, fucking. Um, I don't think there was any incest. Probably a bit of emotional stuff, but none of the uh, physical crap you usually get between Jamie and Cersei. And uh, they didn't have any uh, gay fucking that you get if you have Loras and Renly involved. Um, that's about it. If you like Game of Thrones, go play it. If not, you suck. Go uh, go walk off a short pier and take a, a nice long dive into a cold river. <laughs> yeah, I'm in that cold river. I don't give two craps about that show, but... <laughs> It looks like this is an interesting game, I suppose. So uh, it is an interesting game. It has beautiful graphics, like more of a like a hand drawn style. Just like most of the scenery, just looks like an oil painting, an oil or water color painting. It's gorgeous. I love it. And look kind of similar in many ways to the Walking Dead games, but the the scenery and the buildings and stuff look really nice. Mm -hmm. It does have the same look to uh, Mungus or Wolf Among Us and <laughs> Walking Dead, but less gritty and more. Just had a more gentle, artistic look to it, which is funny because Game of Thrones isn't necessarily gentle. It's qu it's quite rough around the edges and very brutal in a lot of its uh, storytelling. Were you satisfied with the ending of this uh, season? Yes, I was. And I know that it could have been different because there are a few uh, monumental choices you could have made. It's very significant choices throughout that were well reflected as I played. Okay. Well, they just announced season two. And I think I will replay the game before I get season two, but I am totally getting season two. I was really happy with this. Mm. Unfortunately, the the anticipation of waiting for the game to come out was horrible. Oh, you mean season by season? No, just episode by episode because they. Oh, sorry, that's what I meant. Yeah. yeah. Uh, the anticipation. I was so happy when they finally announced when the last one was coming out. It had been months. And oh, that's nice. That's <laughs> something I haven't really felt. Since the Seven Max games in Telltale's early day, days. Mm -hmm. But this was good. And it was worth the wait. And it was a long story, too. Excellent characterization. So, like I said, I can't really talk much without without spoiling the story. Mm -hmm. Well, I'm sure it'll be on sale mm -hmm. coming soon. Oh, yeah, we should mention that I believe next week uh, Steam is going to have a big Black Friday sale. Yay, Black Friday. <clears throat> Yay. And interestingly, it sounds like Steam is going to do away with their Daily sales and flash sales. Instead, they're just going to have all the games at whatever sale price they want to be offered at uh, for the duration of the sale instead of having little sales, like little mega sales in a timely fashion. So we'll see how that works for them. They said they're going to do that for the, the Black Friday sale as well as the winter holiday sale. So that's interesting. Mm -hmm. So why don't you tell us what you played next? All right, next I will mention Skyrim. So we talked a little bit about Skyrim last week when we were talking about um, Fallout 3. Still not really interested in Fall Earth's Fallout 4. I mean, I'm still not terribly interested in Fallout 4. Somehow Bianca has become a little more interested in it, so maybe we'll get the game for her. Mm -hmm. um, we watched Lazy Games Review, and it looked interesting. Uh, I don't know. I was 
I just felt like I want an open world game. I played Grand Theft Auto. I don't know how much more I can get out of it unless I go back and play the story. Mm-hmm. Well, if you've seen it, you've seen it. Mm-hmm. So I picked up Skyrim again. Um, I mentioned last week that the Skyrim engine, which is the same as the Fallout 4 engine, has trouble with frame rates faster than 60. So that's a big problem because we have these fantastic 144 hertz monitors that go to waste if you have to limit them. <clears throat> uh, those games, they just don't run properly at all. They, um, or at least, at least I can speak uh, definitively for Skyrim. I don't know about Fallout 4, how it is right now. But in Skyrim, if you run it faster than 50 frames per second, the AI glitches out and the physics glitch out and you get like flying horses and <laughs> jiggling rocks and some of the menus won't open and some of the fonts don't display. It just gets really screwed up if you try to play it at higher than 60 frames a second. So I've been looking and looking for different hacks and mods and stuff that will just modify the game to only run to 60 frames per second. And I tried a few and none of them are working. The only option I had was to <clears throat> go to the NVIDIA control panel. You know, you right click your Windows desktop and go to or you just right-click the Windows desktop and you click NVIDIA control panel. It's part of the NVIDIA driver set. And then I had to manually configure my whole system to only run at 60 frames a second. And then Skyrim ran reliably. So that is annoying. It's very annoying. But it works. I played Skyrim for, I don't know, two or three hours this week. It's a great game. I have a lot of fun with that game. I have a mod. <clears throat> I have a few mods for that game. The two that are that suit my play style are one of them. Uh, allows you to create a new game and you you skip the story. You kind of start at a random area, like anywhere in the game, and you can configure your character with some basic equipment based on the sort of character you want to play. So there's like six different uh, melee builds and six different sneaky builds and six different archer and mage builds. So that's really cool. And it only kind of describes them vaguely about what your specialties are, what your equipment is, what your skills, uh, your primary skills are. So that's kind of fun. <clears throat> um, the other mod that I recommend is, I think it's just called Longer Days, where it makes it so that uh, it, night night is as dark as it always is, but for fewer hours. So like the sun doesn't set till 10 p.m. or something, and then the sun rises at 5 a.m. instead of being like eight hours of darkness, which is kind of annoying. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> so I just played smashing around and stuff. I played a uh, sword and board kind of a guy. I have, I have like a, a an axe or a mace, I forget what I have now, and a shield. And um, decided not to really do any quests. I just kind of ran around and attacked a bunch of stuff and raided some tombs and sold my stuff and got some better gear. And that was fun for a while. Um, then I decided to do one quest because I got it I got it by accident. It was one of the Daedra quests, which are like the playful uh, demigods or whatever. <clears throat> so this Daedra wanted me to fetch her, her fancy sword. And it's a one-handed sword that I've gotten on other characters, but not, well, those characters didn't use swords. So I figured, okay, cool, I'll give it a try. So I, and she said that um, the sword is possessed by some necromancer at the bottom of this the cave. Sea. Not at the bottom of the sea, it's heard. There's a necro at the bottom of the sea. Okay, shut up. <laughs> <laughs> so, <laughs> you're terrible. So I fought my way through the bottom of the sea. I fought my way through the sea, and I got to the bottom of the sea, and I killed everything with moderate difficulty, but I got through it. <clears throat> and then in the very last room, there's this necromancer and, like, eight little minion guys. So with considerable difficulty, I uh, beat all eight of the minions, and then I hid, hid into safety, and I saved my game. <clears throat> and this friggin' necromancer just one-shots me, no matter what I do. It's uh, The necromancer casts... Um, ice spells, and the ice spells slow me down when they hit me, 
and they drain my stamina as well. Um, and if one shot doesn't hit me, then it slows me down enough that the second shot will... Sorry, if one shot doesn't kill me, it slows me down enough that the second shot will kill me, and I'm pretty worthless. So I can't beat this guy. I even turned the difficulty down to the easiest it will go, and instead of one-shotting me, he just two-shots me. I cannot... This is pretty much insurmountable. I don't know what the hell I'm supposed to do. Naturally, as soon as I walk in the door, the door locked, and then I saved while I was inside the door, so I can't get out. The mm -hmm. only way out is through. So I'm pretty well screwed. So I guess that's probably the end of, of this guy. Smurlap yeah, I think I, Stinkles. I think I call myself Zebu or something. So I uh, guess that's Zebu horse flake licker. <laughs> yeah, something like something having to do with Zebu's horses and licking, no doubt. So I guess that's the end of that guy. But that's okay. I think I got Skyrim out of my system. Mm -hmm. Um Right. So the other thing that I was I have this in my notes too. The the only other thing that I'm wary about with Fallout 4 is, I mean, I, I thought maybe if I get Fallout 4, I'll wait for the Game of the Year edition with all the DLC and stuff like that, but I did that with Fallout New Vegas, which I really didn't enjoy that much. It didn't resonate with me at all. But it has the worst new player experience, as do a lot of Bethesda games. Um, if you buy it with all the DLC, this happened in Oblivion 2, I remember. You make a new character, and you are spammed incessantly with all of this crap that just gets unlocked, like as you take your first steps or as you right after you finish the tutorial, it happens again. And it says, Oh, you got a miss you you heard you heard from a courier or something that this place across the world is now unlocked. And you're a brand new character who just stepped out of the vault. You don't even know any of this stuff, and yet you're getting all this spam about that. And you get all you get all these like extra all this extra money and health packs and items and stuff, and it really ruins the game where they give you all this free stuff. And some of it you can just drop and pretend you didn't have. And other others of the stuff, like the money, you can't just drop your money as far as I know. You're stuck with it. So it really is a, an annoying way to play the game. So that ruins it for me, and that's what I'm concerned about will happen in Fallout. Uh, okay. Do um, you have another one? Yes. So I bought uh, a few uh, indie games because I was interested in one or two in this uh, indie gallop bundle. One of them I wound up playing and actually liking, and it was uh, Grey Cubes. Grey Cubes. Grey Cubes? Yeah, Grey Cubes. Okay. Um, What's it about? The, the dinner you cooked for me? <laughs> I thought you liked Oh, I thought you liked my <laughs> cooking. That's just my turn to insult you. I love your cooking, babe. <laughs> okay, most of us, are, all of us are at, this, at this point should be familiar with breakout games where you bounce the ball and you break the wall. <laughs> that rhymes. Exactly, that was the idea. But this one is interesting because it's um it's on a three dimensional plane, and it's like an isometric top down kind of uh, way of looking at it. So you're not just doing going up and down. You're also you break blocks from the back, from the side, and sometimes from the top. And you also bounce the balls off, and so you're uh, so you're not always just a uh, brick at the top. You have different angles that you uh, that you have to get out from. Um, of course, there's the standard uh, power-ups and power-down that drop. Sometimes uh, sometimes blocks are invisible, so you have to bounce your uh, ball around and to, to find them. And so uh, there's, the first time I just came across a puzzle like that, I was confused. I'm like, where are my blocks? And as I played around, I realized that I had to bounce my ball. So I hit everything. 
And then it also dawned on me that this, that the uh, blocks were on these highlighted squares. So it's kind of interesting. It's a, on a three-dimensional plane, and it's just a whole new level of a uh, block breaker. It was fun. And completely mouse controlled. That's all I needed was just my mouse. Enjoyable. Yeah, it looked kind of different from some of the other block-breaking games in that it uses physics. Yep. So that's sort of neat, because usually in those games you just have like a grid of unmoving blocks that you bounce your ball off of and that's it. Yep, and, some, and sometimes these blocks just bounce around too. Yeah, if you hit one, then it might push the other ones and they're a little bit askew. So that kind of makes it different than the others. It means that you can hit things that are not at perfect right angles, which changes the trajectory of the ball and adds a little challenge. It's quite attractive too. Yeah, not particularly colorful, but it does have nice graphics and well, gray colors. Blocks gray, white, and blue are your colors. But it's nice and clean. Mm -hmm. It's a good one, and it was uh, part of a $3 bundle where I got... Oh, that's right. I should include the other game I played. Oh, by the way, you're, you're a $3 bundle. <laughs> Do you want to continue sleeping on the couch? No. That's what I thought. And uh, I'll just take this opportunity to talk about the, uh, the last game I played. I played a game that probably suits me as a person. Crow. You play as a bird, and your objective is to fly around collecting trinkets. You level up. I know, you level up as a bird. And then you have to fight these guardians that are other birds. What was interesting about the first fight was that I have two things. I can either block or I can attack. And I have to block in a certain way by performing the action while facing this big owl, I have to collect energy in order to attack. And in order to survive, I have to dodge his attacks. It was quite interesting. And uh, I found it a unique gaming experience. There wasn't much to it. You fly around and you collect shiny trinkets. The boss fight, you don't know much. You don't get really told much of anything. But it wasn't too difficult to figure out how to defeat the boss the first time. And after you get past the first one, it tells you the second time that, oh, not all bosses can be defeated by attacking. Sometimes you can defeat them by deception. So now I'm intrigued to continue. Hmm. But yes, I'm a bird and I, and I flew around. That was nice to actually get a bird's eye view of the world. Neat. Crow is what it's called. Yes. Yeah? That's cool. And now, uh, do you want to tell anyone, you want to tell the nice people what you played or? Okay, sure. We have, we have like five, about five minutes or so until uh, the open crowdsource starts. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> all right. I'll mention very briefly, two more games I'll mention very briefly. One is Borderlands, the pre-sequel. I enjoyed Borderlands 1 a lot. I enjoyed Borderlands 2 even more, which is rare for a sequel, but it's a very, very good game. Somehow, Borderlands pre-sequel, it's just kind of not really grabbing me. I bought it uh, about a year or more ago, I suppose. <clears throat> and I played it for like two hours or something over the course of the year. Didn't really care. It just wasn't significantly different from the other ones. It came out very soon after Borderlands 2 as well. And Borderlands 2, by then, I had bought all of this uh, add-on content expansions and weapons and stuff like that. Or not weapons, but expansions and characters and things like that. <clears throat> Um, so buying a brand new game with none of that stuff really strips it down and makes it feel naked and shallow. Um, 
I decided to give it a bit of a try this past weekend, or this past week, and it's, like, pretty good, but still I feel like it's not significantly different from the other ones. I'm not going to continue with it. The only thing that's really amusing about it is that for no particular reason, I mean, the the theme of the other games is that it's, like, space hillbillies. Everyone speaks with, like, a, a South USA accent. Space. Space. Beep. Um, but in, uh, for no particular reason, in Borderlands, the pre-sequel, everyone is Australian, <laughs> which is amusing because I love the Australian accent anyway. Um, and they have a lot of the colloquialisms and stuff like that. But the cutest part, which I don't know why they even did this, um, you, you are in space and there are weightless areas. And um, <clears throat> usually when it's weightless, it means that there's also no atmosphere around you. And so you have an oxygen tank that you have to periodically refill with uh, oxygen, but instead of calling it oxygen or O2, they call it Oz. So that's just funny because everybody's Australian. All right, the only other thing I will mention is uh, Diablo 3. I gave that a rest for uh, a good while, but um, there's this uh, Diablo 3 season happening, which I've never cared about seasons before. It's just an opportunity for you to create a brand new character without any of the gear or benefits or bonuses that you may have earned in the main game. <clears throat> And at the end of the season, which is I don't know how many months, then your then your seasonal character turns into one of your regular characters, and you can share your banks across season and characters and all of that. So, um, <clears throat> amazingly, surprisingly, I got my character up to the maximum level of seventy, which is a very rare thing for me to do at all in Diablo. Never mind for a seasonal one, but I had fun with the Demon Hunter Archer class, and Bianca had a character that was up to like sixty. Or 66 or something. I'm 70 now. Now you're 70. Yeah, we, we uh, played a bunch together and we had quite a good time and I hope we can play some more this weekend. Yep. I have a wizard and... Oh, it's a wizard. That's right. Mm -hmm. And we, yeah, and we're playing well together because Diablo 3 lets you respect your characters pretty freely and uh, the different skills that you can switch between um, will be associated with different elements. So there's like physical or fire or ice or lightning uh, skills. And like there are variants of any one skill. So we both kind of tweaked our characters so that we're both using uh, cold damage. And when an enemy is cold or frozen or slowed down, we do extra damage. So the two of us playing together like that, it kind of compounds upon itself to make us all that much more effective. And we're really kicking butt together. So it's fun. Mm -hmm. We have just a moment or two before uh, open crowdsource. Do you want to squeeze any any last thing in? Nope, I think that's all the games I played this week. Okay, that's not true. When we come back from the podcast, you're going to talk about uh, Mini Metro. Oh, that's right. Okay, so <laughs> hold that. I to add that to the list. And right, so hold, hold that thought. We'll come back as soon as uh, that other show is done, yeah? Yeah. Okay, see you guys in a moment. Bye. None here can survive this Tygene Abyss and rescue Ariel. And guys, we're back having just finished uh, watching Open Crowdsource. We won't uh, spoil anything for you. We'll just encourage you to go watch this week. This is very disturbing. Well, at least the IRC chat was. Well, yeah, however, that's true. I think that's pretty much the trend. However disturbing open crowdsource may be, the IRC channel is like the offensive stuff that even they don't dare to <laughs> say out loud. So that's got to tell you something. It's like the, the dankest depths of hell. They just take out, they take the stuff that's fit for public exposure and they leave us in a dark corner and pretend we don't exist while we, while we sit there and wallow in our, uh, <laughs> in our crapulence. Exactly. I love wallowing. Me too. So we left off with Brian mentioning mini Metro that I played. Yay. 
Now, <laughs> this is an interesting game. I bought it pretty early when it was, you know, still in early access. It's nothing, it's not a very, it doesn't look like a complicated game. In fact, it's deceptively simple looking. The idea is that uh, there's these different cities and you, and there's different points. You essentially are, your purpose is to design a, a metro or subway system and to move people from point A to point B to point C. And as you progress, more points pop up and you have to join them to your existing subway lines. You can choose to have one continuous line and then throw in relief lines or make smaller RAS segments. So... <laughs> is that right, Maxie? Oh, she's a podcaster. As Maxie seemed to like the game as well and had something to say about it. <laughs> mm-hmm. But what's but the thing is, after playing it and getting pretty pretty far in, it's uh, obvious it's not as easy as it looks, and I actually like that. What's really fun is it's got three different game modes. That's right, Maxie. It has normal, <laughs> endless, shit, and um, extreme. Normal is you get that you have stations pop up as you go through the week. And more and more people start to use your subway lines. Endless is as is basically the Zen mode. You can't possibly lose endless. And extreme is is basically normal, except you cannot move or adjust your subway lines after you've laid them down. Normal, you can adjust the line. Same with endless. But you want, but if you're playing extreme, you want you want to be sure about your lines. You don't want to just lay them down. You want to make sure you know what you're doing. So yes, it's a real-time strategy game, but unlike others, you're not fighting anything but your own bad management techniques. Yeah, it's like a real-time puzzle game, I guess. <laughs> it's really fun with a really simple interface, and I love it. Do you want to talk about the interface since that's our topic of the day? Okay. So as I said, you get a map. There's not a whole lot in the map. It's just a, uh, a simple outline of a landmass and some water. And three, and you start with three different shapes to represent the different stations. You get a square, a triangle, and a circle, and they have different mechanics behind them. And you start off with three, start off with three stations. Which, and then your objective is to connect these three stations. I start off with one line. I and I have it just. I can either have it be a line, or I can connect the line to make a circuit. And as I go along, another one will appear, and then I have to connect it to my existing infrastructure. And I can either do that by opening my circuit if I've closed it, or just extending my existing line. <laughs> or if I have uh, other lines I haven't used or have used, and it's closer to my station, I just extend those. But the thing is, you have to be careful because the subways only go so fast, and you have only so many that you can do before they become overcrowded. Overcrowd you want to avoid overcrowding at all costs because that's what ends your game before you can uh, go into, before it t tells you, okay, you can stop here or you can go into endless. S essentially, there's, there's no text on screen. The text only appears if uh, when you reach the end of the week to say, your week is complete. You now got two more two new two new locomotives, and you can pick one of these two upgrades: either a new line, an additional carriage, an interchange station, or tunnels. Tunnels are interesting because um, in the, every single one of the maps has a body of water to cross, and it's always a river. 
the river is either just just that, the river, or there'll be like little islands, for example. St. Petersburg is one of the uh, map levels, and it has multiple islands. And the really frustrating part about that level is multiple stations will pop up on these islands. And if you run out of tunnels, you can effectively strand your passengers and end your game if you've been... Uh, if you've mismanaged your subway lines. And all of this is visible through the graphical interface. There is almost no text whatsoever. Everything is unlabeled and it's all just a line. Like, I kind of like how passengers are illustrated as little shapes that appear next to a station and yeah. the shape of the passenger corresponds to the type of station that they want to travel to. Yes, and as you as the longer you play, the more stations become have unique icons, and so ultimately there will be passengers that start on one end of the line and want to get to that unique shaped uh, station, which may be at the other end, and so you want to make sure that all your stations are connected in such a way that there are relief lines to avoid uh, rush hour burst, and it happens like that because each day is broken into night and into morning and night hours to represent different rush hours. Hmm. And at the end of every week, you get that's when you get your new upgrade. And so the best thing to do is to have relief lines, which I found out early on is actually a good idea. Well, actually, I didn't find it early on, which I found out while playing the one the harder level, St. Petersburg, is actually really helpful. If you just have one line that cuts across your big circuit, it makes a huge difference. And that line can then join up with another one of your uh, lines, which is across the water, which reduces the need to have um, multiple tunnels. His tunnels are a luxury. Without tunnels or bridges, you may very well strand parts of your line and create overflow on stations. The objective is to have all of your stations connected at one point or another. What's really interesting is there's even achievements that play specifically into that kind of uh, city. For example, Melbourne has an achievement to have all of its um, lines connect at one major hub. London has an achievement to only use one tunnel and to, tra and to transport a thousand people using only one tunnel to connect two sides of the city across and to get the and to keep the city moving. And all of this is done without a whole lot. Even as the interface continues to grow. You don't really get a lot. It just the map just slow, very slowly zooms out. You don't even realize the map is zooming out until you've been playing for a few minutes and you realize that the city is slowly becoming exposed to you, and that you have to uh, lay your tracks down in real time or adjust them. Make sure that there's no overflow. Add new carriages or uh, trains to help relieve the stress from people just using this one uh, line. Yeah, the interface is it is a a very pretty game, mm -hmm. and like it's kind of subtle in the ways that it communicates things, and the way that it presents the map to you, and the way that the complexity increases. I like I like how it zooms out almost imperceptibly as the complexity and the difficulty ramps up over time. Mm -hmm. I call this like Helvetica, the game, because <laughs> that's sort of the it has this kind of like an airport signage, uh, like Windows Metro UI design kind of a, an aesthetic to it, like thick, bold, simple lines. It's very, very beautiful. Very pretty, and I got so far eight hours in it. 
and it's just something that's really nice to pick up and play and the interface has not been cluttered over time as they added new stuff to it and enhanced it. In fact, they've stayed true to the original concept while adding new content, which is absolutely amazing. And the game is, I believe, I believe it's out of early access. Let me check Steam quickly. I believe that, let's see, where is it? Did they take it out of early Go access? Go to a uh, start page. Yeah, start page. Yeah, I got this in early access, and it looks like they've Don't taken... scroll up a bit. Yeah. Yeah, it looks like it's out of early access now. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, I'll put a link to it in the show notes. Oh, look at the trailer. That's so pretty. Oh, yeah, it's really pretty. Cool. <laughs> so... <laughs> oh, I've never watched the trailer before. Yeah, we'll have to see that. Not while we're doing a show. <laughs> of course not. Okay, I'll scroll. I'll, I'll click away from it. Please do. It's very distracting. <laughs> okay, so... In terms of UIs, this is probably one of the most simple UIs I've seen so far, and yet it's one of the prettiest. Who I love the simplicity of it. I haven't seen anything as simple as it that accomplishes so much with so little. Hmm. So before we go into the rest of the games and UIs that uh, we want to talk about for various reasons, whether they're good, bad, or have something unique about them, why don't we go into some of the feedback we've gotten from our listeners? <clears throat> oh, sure. Well, actually, yeah, our, our uh, listener feedback today is about the topic. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> Excuse me. Uh, okay, our first one is from uh, Anatoly, Dust Nostalgic. Hi, Anatoly. Uh, so I put out a, a call on Twitter uh, for people, as, always, as I always try to do about a week in advance. I'm asking for feedback by email or whatever. So he writes... Not going to email, but my favorite adventure game UI is from Leisure Suit Larry 7. He says, I like custom verbs more than icons. Verb coin is a close second, but an other option is nice. However, inventory window is a bit meh. I don't remember the inventory window in Leisure Suit Larry 7. Uh, do I have a thing? Do I write about adventure games? I thought I did. Uh, no, I don't know. Oh, right, right. So let's read. Um, I did write it in there. Let's, let's, uh, thank you, Anatoly, for the feedback. I do want to talk about Leisure Suit Larry 7. Let's talk... Uh, I'm first going to read uh, Robert Mena's, uh comment. Hi, Rob. He says, not emailing either, but I'll say the later Scum Engine games, Sam and Max and Onwards, have my vote. The simplified UI, right mouse click to select verbs, made the game much easier to play one-handed and, what, and much faster. I did like the verb coin of Full Throttle and Curse of Monkey Island as well. By that point, LucasArts got the minimal UI down pat. I grew up on textual verbs, but I like that they evolved the UI over time to make the games more accessible, because it turned into an even-my-mom-can-play-this kind of a game. <laughs> Although my mom didn't get, why all of the LucasArts, didn't get why all the LucasArts demand. Okay. Thanks, uh, Robert, and thanks, Anatoly. <clears throat> so that's, the, those are both really good feedback about uh, adventure games. <laughs> Sorry, I just thought of something else I wanted to mention. That's okay. Um, so we've done it before, but I guess let's talk a little bit about adventure games, uh, UIs, and uh, then we can talk specifically about these examples. So um, they really started, to the best of my knowledge, they started off as text adventures, which had no graphics at all. You would type, you would read a textual description of the scene and the objects that can be interacted with. Um, and sometimes it's, you could say, look, and it would tell you kind of a list of objects you could interact with. Otherwise, it was just kind of implied by what was present in the scene, and you had to kind of think one step further. So basically, wet cat food. I don't remember much about that game. 
you were a cat, and you had to, and your objective was to get your uh, asshole in order to fucking feed you, and you got tossed outside, and you got eaten by bears. That's what I remember. Oh, you got eaten by a bear in that game? Yeah, I remember wet food. That was a cute text adventure. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, so you would type, you would type to move your character, you would say, go east, go west, or you would type to access your inventory, or you would type to interact with the scene. You would just type uh, short sentences in English or whatever, and that was your interaction with the game, and the user interface uh, was uh, conducive to that. Um, and if the game didn't understand you, it would, it would tell you in no uncertain terms that I had no idea what the fuck you were talking about. That's right. But I, I want to try to talk more about uh, user interface mm-hmm. uh, more than uh, human interface. So, or like more, more than, sorry, more than about controls. <clears throat> so uh, the user interface in a text adventure was basically whatever the narrator told you about a scene. So that's yeah. kind of an interesting thing. A lot of it was up to your imagination. Um, so after that, we had the text parser 3D adventures where you would still type to interact with the uh, scene, but you would use your arrow keys to move around. And so the user interface showed your avatar on screen, physically moving around, and you would have to position yourself physically close to something before you can interact with it. Usually, <clears throat> excuse me. So, um, a lot of my notes are about controls and not user interfaces, but whatever. I think most people here are familiar enough with that. I don't have to say much mm-hmm. more about that. And then um, there's the pure point and click ones. Um, Which did away with having to type in to uh, get the. Uh, <clears throat> Your, the screen to show you your information, you could just look and it would be apparent what you could do. Yeah, that's right. And there would be some kind of a verb, either a word or an icon or something. Uh, or later on, it would, there were single icon games where you would just right click and you, you would click and you would do contextually what was appropriate for that area. Yeah, instead of having to cycle through the 10 icons that Jane Jensen thought everyone should have. Or was it Roberto Williams? Yeah, it was Jane Jensen and <laughs> Gabriel Knight that had more, more verb icons than I think I've seen in any other game. Um, so what do we say about that? I, I was I was trying initially to get more feedback about visual user interfaces than about controls, because I love to do another episode about controls, but those two are kind of tightly interwoven, so I yeah. guess it's unavoidable that we talk they about it a little bit. They are tightly interwoven, since, the U, since controls are part of the user interface and the overall user experience. But yeah, I would say that the I came in later, so I've seen adventure games that rely more on the visual aspect rather than the text and moving aspect. So you don't have to type to move; you just click and you move. You even—I didn't even have—I didn't even realize that I could I had to pick the icon I needed to do my interaction. I was used to just clicking and or have or mousing over and having the icon automatically uh, transform, which is a nice uh, touch. Mm-hmm. I like that about more modern user interfaces is that the icon change it depending on what action you can do. So yeah, Broken Sword, I think, did a good job of that, if I'm remembering right, where you would click on some element in the world, and then uh, it would show you a verb coin that only had the the different verbs that were appropriate for that context. Yeah, or the uh, or in the case of some Telltale games, it would pop up a uh, the uh, wheel, and it would have the different things you mm. could do. Uh, which Same is, thing. Yeah, which is uh, which is common in Game of Thrones. Talk to, look at, or examine, mm-hmm. use whatever, mm-hmm. or whatever verbs they decided were appropriate to that one particular interaction. Right. I think in addition to that, Broken Sword just included like an inventory thing where you could use something in your pocket. 
on the web. And make and ask people if they want to see your smelly uh, snot rag. Yeah, your soiled hanky. <laughs> that stupid soiled hanky. Uh-huh. It's gonna haunt me forever. I know it's pretty gross. Mm-hmm. So um. Uh, yeah, so uh, Anatoly mentions Leisure Suit Larry Seven, which is a really uh, – it's a weird kind of a chimera of a, of an, of a UI. It has the point-and-click interface with uh, different verbs that you, can, uh, that you can choose and click on the interface in order to interact with uh, an element. But it also allows you – it has the other option. So, I mean – sorry, my, my brain isn't working oh, well yet because I'm poorly rested. Worked? Well, it usually works better than it does today. I'm probably going to have a short show today because I'm kind of brainular today. <laughs> so I believe what it did was you would uh, you would right-click on something on the screen and it would show you uh, a, like a – it looked like a Windows right-click menu, just a list of textual options, and you could click on one, and those were different verbs. But at the bottom of the list was another option that said other. And if you click other, then it gave you a little uh, text parser box where you could type something in and suggest uh, a verb – that wasn't on the list, which is a really, really cool idea. It's kind of a best of both worlds sort of a thing. I think you can get through the whole game without typing anything into other, but there were some Easter eggs and just some kind of like uh, mm-hmm. color commentary that you could get to by typing in a non-standard verb into other. So that was a really cool thing. Hmm. That's really interesting. And mm-hmm. it, it sounds like this would have been probably the last time they had that parser box to yeah, allow right. the, the overlap between the uh, the generations and in in user interface where you were either tell the game what you wanted to do or at least figure out what you had to do by typing in different actions to see what you what would happen and being given the option so you didn't even have to think about it. You're absolutely right about that. The interesting thing was Leisure Suit Larry 1, 2, and 3 were all text, uh, text parser games. Then... Leisure Suit Larry 5 and 6, there was no 4. Leisure Suit Larry 5 and 6 were just mouse-driven point-and-click games. Mm -hmm. And then Leisure Suit Larry 7 was the combination of uh, point-and-click and and typing. So it was kind of a throwback by the time they implemented it. Mm-hmm. And Leisure Suit Larry 7 was the first one that was exclusively in Super VGA high resolution as well. So it was a really interesting combination of modern and uh, classic technologies in that game. And it was really like a best-of-all scenarios kind of a game in many ways, including the multimedia presentation. That was a great game. I really liked that game a lot. That's probably the best Leisure Suit Larry game there was. Um, and Robert mentions the Scum engines, which are very interesting because when was the first Maniac Mansion game? I think that was from like 80, 87? Yeah, uh, I think so. I, I vaguely remember seeing it in school. Oh, really? Yeah. That's neat. Maniac Mansion. The first one is 1987 for the Apple II, the Commodore 64. Yeah, 87. So that game was point-and-click from the very start, back when Sierra was still doing text parser games. And I guess that's because if it was on the Apple, um, that was a, a very early computer with a mouse. Didn't the Commodore have a mouse as well? Uh, Commodore had the joystick. Mm, I don't know if Commodore ever had a mouse, but that must have been controlled through the joystick. It might have been Apple was controlled with the joystick, too, for all I know. But that had the LucasArts uh, old scum engine style um, list of verbs, but the textual verbs, kind of like Day of the Tentacle as well on the bottom. And you would click on text like look at or push or pull or something like that. And then you would click on the environment and it would kind of build a sentence. So you would click look at and then hover over something in the world and it would say look at uh, door on the bottom of the screen. 
<laughs> or use inventory item with object on the screen. I really liked how it built a sentence, which kind of gave it that connection to the text parser style games. <clears throat> Pardon me. All right, next uh, letter is from uh, Joe Mastriani. We are not hearing enough of this guy today. He was no, just yeah. the, the guest on the uh, open crowdsource uh, show that he we just finished watching. He didn't talk a whole bunch. He could have talked a little more. I would have loved to hear what he had to say creatively. Yeah, that's a, well, that show in general, you hear a lot of yakking from the hosts. There are three hosts and one guest. So the ratio of host to guest in terms of verbiage well, is already Well, it seems Trolls kind of just dominates. <laughs> Someone had to lock him up in his dungeon, not he's let a, him out. He's a dominatrix, I suppose. <laughs> his so, dungeon looked a little dark today. Yeah, you, yeah, that's true. Troll in the dark. <laughs> he was sitting in the dark today. Everyone else is oh, in the light. Oh, poor guy. Oh. So, uh, Joe, oh, he hits near and dear to my heart. Um, Joe says, um, I'll be talking about it tomorrow, but Homeworld has an incredible UI. Stays out of your way. And he did talk about that on the last Upper Memory Block podcast. I'll have to put that Umbo. in. Umbo. Yeah, I'll have to put that in the show notes. That was a really good episode um, where he talks about a very minimal UI for a relatively very complex game. That's a real-time strategy game, Homeworld, which is more complex than most RTSs because not only do you have, like, a magnitude more units to control, it sounds like you have, like, literally dozens of units that you have to control at any one time, tons and tons of ships. But it's also three-dimensional. There's a Z-axis, so you have to control them not only left, right, up, and down, but also, like, in and out um, in, in the third dimension. So it sounds like they did a really interesting job of uh, balancing a minimal UI that keeps the game looking cinematic with something that's usable and taking advantage of both the mouse and keyboard shortcuts in order to let you move around effortlessly without putting too many buttons on the screen. I know that's really good for a cinematic aspect, but a lot of people complain about that in terms of usability. People with mobility issues, for example, or eyesight issues or whatever, they tend to prefer buttons on the screen. <clears throat> um, oh, and I should give a shout out, by the way, to, oh gosh, what's it called? Dungeon Crawler game that's kind of like Eye of the Beholder and it's a brand, relatively new game. Legend of Grimrock, that's what I'm thinking of. Uh, Legend of Grimrock, um, one of his beta testers um, had issues with mobility and could only play the game with a mouse and had asked whether he could add some movement keys to the UI or make an option to add movement keys to the UI. And the developer was amazing and very accommodating. He said he's just going to add them to the UI for the benefit of everyone who didn't uh, think to ask for those features. So that's really, really cool of him. Um, so uh, I haven't played Homeworld. I really have to. My appetite is particularly uh, particularly uh, whetted after listening to his last show. <laughs> and I recommend you do as well. Um, Joe also says, Wing Commander for Immersion. Everything... Everything is in-universe. So um, he doesn't go into any detail, but I'm going to go into detail because I love Wing Commander very, very much, and it's amazing. The user interface in that game is really amazing. Um, Most of... Well, some of what I'll talk about is in the gameplay, which is in the spaceship, but I think the coolest parts of the user interface are between missions when you are on your... Uh, star, uh, your your carrier, the tiger's claw. Um, 
Rare. Rare. The first thing, beep, the first thing that you do, uh, the, like the, as soon as you start a brand new game, the first thing you do is you're sitting at a cockpit and your ship explodes. Um, and then it's revealed that you were like in a simulator, a video game kind of a version in game. And it asks, uh, you're on the high score table and it asks you to put in your name and that's how you enter your name. So right off the bat, it's asking you this, this awkward thing. Like if you're already enlisted in this uh, army, they already know your name. So what's an excuse for you entering in your name um, if you're already established? So this is a perfect one, entering your name as a high scorer on a video yeah. game. And it, does, and it doesn't even break the fourth wall. It's actually quite – it's a nice way of mm. keeping it completely integrated. It is. And that's the theme of the whole UI for this game, which is really, really clever. That is very clever, actually. Never, I never would have thought of that. That's quite brilliant. It's very brilliant. Kudos to the developers for that one. I believe that is designer Chris Roberts, ah. who, is, who is responsible for such fantastic cinematic touches like that. So it keeps going. Um, if you want to... Uh, well, as soon as you're done playing that uh, video game, you enter in your real name and your call sign, your alias for the game, and then it shows you in uh, a bar, Shot Glasses Bar. Shot Glasses is the name of the bartender. And uh, in the bar, there's always the bartender, Shot Glass, and you can talk to him. Or there, And there's one or two pilots usually sitting at a table, and you can talk with all three people, and they kind of familiarize you. With uh, the UI, sorry, the, the AI of the game, you you speak to them and they tell you war stories, and they'll say things like, "Oh, I I noticed that um, when you're fighting against this kind of a ship, it always turns to the left because of the way the ship is built, and the pilot can't see to the right very well. So if you're behind this ship, get ready for it to break to the left." And that's just a little AI programming thing that they put in to give a little bit of character, um, and it's something that you might have learned by gameplay if you were observant enough, but. Instead of having that written in a manual, they tell you verbally and they put it in the context of a, a one of your fellow peers telling a story. That's awesome. That is such good that's such game good game development and it's, it's a good story enhancer. Exactly. Very cohesive. It's, it's extremely smart. And it takes away the need to to uh, put information on screen instead <laughs> puts in the form of natural sounding dialogue and and keeps the game flowing without any breakage. Exactly. And they actually, the the pilots will gossip about each other too. They'll gossip about someone who's not sitting there, or one of them will kind of uh, give the other pilot who's sitting next to him a ribbing. Um, for instance, there's one pilot, an infamous uh, co-pilot of yours named Maniac. <laughs> um, oh, and Maniac, by the way, in Wing Commander Three, is played by uh, Tom Wilson. I think is his name. He plays Biff in Back to the Future. Oh yeah, <laughs> which is awesome, and he looks nothing like. The way he's represented in Wing Commander 1 or 2, but he does a great, the more subdued version, but a great version of Maniac in number 3. So, Maniac, um, part subdued of his... Subdued and named Maniac. That's I know. How those don't go together. I know. I know. He's a little bit caricatured and, like, very, like, uh, meth-head tweakery kind <laughs> of in the first couple of games. Um, his AI is that he'll make various decisions about the ways that he'll handle different uh, scenarios. So, for example... One thing that you do a lot in Wing Commander is you'll have to take out a capital ship that's guarded by a bunch of smaller, more agile fighters. Um, so usually the what you want to do, unless you're under time constraints, what you want to do is pick off all the little fighters so that they don't surprise you, and then uh, take out the big uh, capital ship while it's undefended. Um, but what uh, people tell you... No, you, you chat with Maniac, and he gives you a hint about his own AI, where... Maniac says uh, something like, kill the mama cat and then pick off the kitties or something like that. So if there's 
a whole bunch of uh, imminent threat little fighter pilots that are coming right for you and they're guarding the precious cargo, which is a big capital ship, he'll always go right for the capital ship. And if you, as the wing commander, uh, command your wingman, uh, maniac, to attack one of the fighters, he'll say, nope, I'm not obeying your order. So that's another thing through conversation that he tells you what you can expect about how uh, compliant he is with the chain of command. So I really appreciate that a lot. So that's just while you're sitting at the bar with your fellow pilots. That's so fascinating. It is fascinating. Um, it keeps going, too. Um, you can see there, this was sort of in an era. This is, the what, 1990 or 89 or something? I forget when Wing Commander. Let's look it up. Yep, good idea. Moby. Moby. Wing Commander 1 came out in... Come on, Moby Games. Thank you. 1990. You sure that's the right one? That's Sega CD. Uh, platforms. The, the screenshot of the box is Sega CD, but platforms, it says all the platforms. Uh, okay. Yeah, okay, so 1990. Now that I spent all this time looking it up, I forget what I was going to say about it. Oh, right, it's 1990. So it wasn't unheard of for games around 1990 to still have some ties to the old school arcade mentality, which meant that you would kind of score points. In a game, and you don't score points in Wing Commander, but it does keep a running tally of the number of kills that you've achieved throughout uh, the, the whole campaign. So there's no high score table, uh, so to speak, but, well, I guess there is, because in um, Shot Glass's bar, there's a chalkboard behind the tables where the where your, uh, your, your fellow pilots are having their drinks. And if you look at the chalkboard, it shows a list of all of the pilots and how many kills they've gotten. And you start off at the very bottom, and it shows your rank as well. You start off at the bottom of it, and as you fly, you slowly make your way to the very top of the chalkboard as the hotshot pilot. And it's, like, written in a chalky kind of a font, which is cool, too. Mm -hmm. So it's sort of an informal way of uh, telling you that information. Yeah, but it also seems to tie in with the whole uh, defeating the enemy, and you're just keeping track of uh, your uh, kills. It's sort of like how in World War II, some pilots mark marked on their plane the number of kills that they had, or... Exactly. That they don't. So it doesn't. It's a kind of a nice way of keeping track, but it doesn't break it by having a number score constantly floating on screen. Yeah, exactly. You have to go out of your way to go find it, and it's in a place where it makes sense for it to be written. Mm -hmm. So that's very cool. So I like that a lot. Um, two more things about the Tiger's Claw. I haven't even gotten into the game yet. This is just the like. This is basically the equivalent of a menu where you would choose different options. Oh, geez, you're kidding. It's very cool, it's, and it's all first person. You don't see yourself in any of. In, in most of this stuff. Um, there is... you. Uh, the, if you go one room over down the hallway from the bar, there's the barracks. And to save your game in the barracks, there's a whole bunch of uh, empty cots in the barracks. And if you click one of the cots, it asks you... I forget if it asks you to save your game or to save your pilot name or something like that. I think it asks your pilot name or something like that. But it's asking you basically to name your saved game in a slot. So you click one of the empty cots and you type in whatever and you say okay and then it puts a pilot um, sleeping in that cot, <clears throat> which is kind of neat. And then to load your game, it would you would click on one of the sleeping pilots and it says, "Do you want to wake?" and the name of the pilot that you had given. So that's cool. And then you would resume from where you left off. And because I was there were like I don't know eight or ten cots, empty cots, and because I was OCD, I would save in every single slot so that it was always full of sleeping pilots. <laughs> 
So I wouldn't just save my game once. I'd save it like 10 times. <laughs> that is the most ridiculous thing I've ever heard. It is ridiculous. But each of the pilots was drawn differently. It looked unique. And I forget if they were animated. But that's that was pretty neat. So it they snow gives as it badly as you do? Screw you. <laughs> um, uh, that's enough about that. And then I guess um, when you're getting your mission objectives uh, to uh, b before you go out on a, on a sortie... It would give you this whole kind of a cutscene thing where you would see the commander uh, uh, speaking to everyone. What are you doing? Nothing. Don't bite that <laughs> animal. Your commander would talk to you and give you a whole description of what you need to do and where you need to go. And it would use different UI elements like maps and descriptions and whatever to show you where you need to go. And it would show you listening intently in the audience and sometimes one of your uh, fellow pilots would ask a question and the camera would show them and then the, the commander would uh, answer their question and speak to them and address them personally. So that's really cool. Okay. Uh, I don't want to talk too much about Wing Commander, but I'll just say briefly then, in when you're inside of your uh, spaceship, I never saw this happen anywhere else before Wing Commander. Maybe there's an earlier example, but... Uh, when you are steering your spaceship around, you can actually see your hand at the bottom like between your, your legs. And when you move the spaceship around, the joystick tilts in that direction too, which was a terrific uh, a terrific uh, immersion thing. I believe the more you tilt the joystick or the longer you hold down a keyboard key, the more angled your hand tilts. And it's not in 3D, it's just sprites, but there's, I think, three increments or something of how far you can be pushing your hand. It's very in any of the eight directions, which is very, very cool. What I really love that was kind of referred to well, I never played the original Elite, so maybe this was a throwback to the original Elite. But in uh, Wing Commander, you had uh, two computer screens in your ship. Uh, one of them, and each of them would show different information. Each of them had multiple screens that you could toggle through. So it would show, like, your target or your ship's condition and your damaged individual systems or what guns or ordnance you had selected or communications who you were talking to or your nav computer. So it would give you all of the in-ship information on those two computers. And you also had a heads-up display, which would show you, like, targets. It would draw a little red box around your targets or whatever. That was actually on your viewing area, like on the windshield. But most of the information was just on those two computers. And what was neat was if your ship got damaged, there's a chance that one of those computers would start to glitch out a little bit. So it would kind of show... Uh, uh, static in snow and the sound would go ch -ch 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 -ch. and it would be really frustrating because you'd try to switch to some information and you'd have to press that button four or five times before it would finally switch to it and not show you static which is kind of cool and if you were really really damaged one of those monitors might uh, explode Star Trek style it's a, it's I was about to ask, do we get any exploding consoles in this? You do <laughs> and then right. you can still do the things associated with that, but you can't see any visual feedback. So you can still switch between which guns or missiles uh, you want equipped, but you can't see what you've equipped until you actually try it because that monitor has exploded. Very cool touch. And that's how you knew that you were really just about dead. So that was awesome. That is fantastic. <clears throat> fantastic. Oh, and I guess the last thing was when you're talking to another pilot or if you want to um, radio in and request a land, uh, one of those screens turns into a video monitor and you see the face of that person speaking to you, which is super cool as well. Uh, so thanks, Joe. That, <laughs> that went into detail about that one. I know. I really do want to check out Homeworld. That sounds like a very cool 
real-time strategy game. Mm-hmm. And we have one last comment uh, from uh, Ori of Talion. Uh, he says, several puzzles... Oh, gosh, what did I... Did I, did I miss one of his tweets where he tells us what game he's talking about? Oh, shoot. I did, I did cut out the tweets, and I know which game he's talking about, too. Um, I got this from... You've played it, I think. I got this from a used game store, and it's a game where... Let me see if I can find it in my Twitter history. Mm-hmm. It's a game where... Um, it's in, like, the Cold War or something, and you play a spy. Spycraft. Was it Spycraft? Yes. It might have been Spycraft. Let me see if we can find it. I, feel I believe like it was jerk. Spycraft, actually. Oh, here we go. Spycraft. Hey, you're awesome. Of course I am. So he says Spycraft was just mentioned. Okay, somebody mentioned Spycraft, I guess. I'm a sucker for any custom computer interfaces in games, and it has many of those. Several puzzles involve unique interfaces. You forensically calculate the trajectory of a gun in a 3D scene. In general, I like how the interfaces can evoke a time period, past or future, and make the mundane desktop interesting. Many adventure games have computers where you read email and each has a unique aesthetic, like Strongbad's computers. That's a really insightful, descriptive comment. Thank you, Ari, for that. That's really great. Oh, yeah. Um, I love that. And that's kind of uh, a, a good analogy for uh, Emily is Away which I mentioned in my games played before, because it has that Windows XP kind of a look. And also, um, uh, Christine Love's Digital A Love Story, which I can't stop mentioning in my podcast, but that also is evocative of, like, late 80s and kind of a Commodore or Amiga-style uh, interface. We, yeah, we, where did I buy that game? Did I get that at a thrift store, or did I order that from somewhere? I have it in physical form. Must be from a thrift store. It must be, <laughs> I guess so. Or uh, Gamerama, which is where we also bought. Uh, oh, maybe. It's been a long time since they had PC games. Though. Yeah, I think they now just have consoles that. and they have a new location. It's spiffy. Yep, they're unvisitable now. They don't sell computer stuff, so I don't care. Yep, and they've stopped selling a lot of other stuff as well. But they have a huge space for uh, tabletop games now. Mm-hmm. It's just cool. Yeah. Whatever. So I guess we could move on to something other than Homeworld, which... <laughs> Hey, don't get me wrong. It sounds awesome, but oh, the, I'm matter, sure. You mean. Yeah, Wink Matter, Homeworld, whatever. I'm sure these other people would love to hear other stuff about UIs. Oh, I'm sure they would. Well, do you want to? I've been yakking away, and I got a pee. So, do you want to get started on one of the games in your list? Okay, this one uh, is this is a bit of a strange one. It's uh, it was the, the developers of this game went out of their way to make it uh, ha- to make it. Uh, User friendly and to be compatible in such a w- with uh, other means of input, so that uh, people, so that individuals who are differently abled could also play it, and it meant that there there was no extremely precise mouse mouse movements needed in order to have objects interact with each other, and there was a lot of single object mat. Uh, a lot of single object puzzles. So if you had, so this, so if you uh, needed to solve something, you only needed one object in order to do it, and you didn't have to make the two objects go together. This is um, my boy, my ex boyfriend, the space tyrant. And yes, it's a gay game. I'm not kidding. The protagonist is basically out to make sure that his ex boyfriend doesn't take over the uh, galaxy because he's a, a huge asshole. But turns, but I won't spoil the end of it. The, my favorite part 
Okay, before I go into the UI, my favorite part of this was um, I had to put on my Sikibi space uniform in order to beam down. If I didn't, my protagonist would cry about, you know, not wanting to beam down naked. So every time I had to leave the ship, I had to put on my sexy little two-piecer <laughs> in order to beam down to the uh, world below. <laughs> By the way, can I can I interrupt you for a second to just call attention to the disparity of uh, you saying the words uh, people? What is it? People who are differently abled yeah. versus last week where you uh, called our guests fags. <laughs> well, they are fags. <laughs> Besides, <laughs> they're fully abled. Oh, that's why. You see, okay. I can crit- you see, you don't you don't push the guy in the wheel. You don't make fun of the guy in the wheelchair. You don't make fun of the uh, mentally disabled individual you can the only time you're allowed to make fun of people is when they're equal to you oh so if they're equal to you does that mean that you're a fag i guess that then what the hell then what the hell does that make you oh i don't know i guess i'm gay for girls (laughs) sorry to interrupt you it's okay (laughs) But yeah, they actually, at the end, the developer, at the end in the credit, the developer actually indicates that he went out of his way to comply with um, different legislation, or no, at least uh, different concepts of, like, different concepts that would allow other people to play the game. So it wasn't, you know, restricted because people had, like, imprecise mice movements because of disabilities. Oh, so I, sorry, I, I missed it. You talked about how he addresses that? Yeah, by having a lot of, by having a wider click box for certain objects and mm. having uh, puzzles being sol- being able to be solved with only one object and you're not having to uh, precisely mouse two objects over each other that was common in older adventure games. That's great. Yeah, this was, um, he specifically went out of his way to make it uh, overall user-friendly without necessarily reducing the challenge of the puzzles. So you still had to walk around, you still had to talk to people. And the actual challenge of the puzzles was not diminished. Just the um, interface itself was designed to be extremely accommodating. That's really nice because I think the general the general uh, rule is that increasing accessibility uh, for the people who rely on it generally improves the product as a whole for everybody. Yep. And I found that, you know, there's a bigger box in general. You have more room for clicking, more room for error. No precise actions were required. But at the same, but the actual difficulty of the puzzles was not reduced. It was left as high as it could be. Mm -hmm. So it was a good experience, but it had a really stupid story. (laughs) It looked very cute. It was very cute, actually. Didn't it have like a, couldn't you unlock like underpants mode at the end? Oh, actually, if you finish the game, then you wouldn't, then you could beam down naked. Hmm. Yeah, it basically was extreme. It was basically they like it seemed like the guy envisioned a female protagonist and then put and then put a guy in girls' clothes. That's great. Yeah, basically the uh, the protagonist walks around this really skimpy outfit that you normally would see females in, with the way male game developers tend to design their characters. But this male, but the male protagonist was walking around in this like with a little midriff showing in these like super short shorts mm-hmm. <laughs> it's like a very gay adventure game exactly it was good it's, it, and it had a decent ending I guess <laughs> I finished it mm-hmm. it was worth it and it wasn't didn't cut and it was if you want to try something different go ahead it was fun but yeah the best part of all was just the overall accessibility of the interface which is why I'm bringing it up why I brought this one up was Usually, is that interfaces sometimes are not wholly accessible to uh, 
people of different of, who are differently abled for uh, either for physical reasons or just for um yeah usually just oh, I should just say physical reasons. Sure. Mm -hmm. Another, I guess, uh, I guess I'll use this as opportunity to talk about World of Warcraft since they have in uh, the late since in Warlord the Draenor they introduced better uh, color blindness support so people who uh, normally don't see colors very well in a very in, who don't see colors um, I don't want to say the word properly but I mean yeah properly is the right word I think okay. there's like red green. Color blindness. It's not like they can't. Yeah, they can't help it. They're just born in such a way that they can't really differentiate. One yeah, color so from that another. they don't see colors. That in a uh, that's pro I would see colors as properly anticipated. Sure. Yeah. So they introduced that, and there's a whole way that it can be adjusted to allow people to make to allow people to uh, configure it so that the colors show up the way they're intended to. Hmm. I've never tried that mode. Do you, have you, do you know what it actually does? I haven't tried it either, but I know that it's supposed to have a lot of color correction. Mm. So that way people, if they normally don't, if they normally see shades of red as like brown or something and green as something else, that they can tune it so that way the colors are more accurately reflected and they appear to be, <laughs> so red is red and blue is blue. Oh, that's neat. I know that other games... In their uh, colorblindness friendly mode, uh, they might add an icon or something next to something. So if there's like three statuses for a single thing, like red, red, yellow, and green, it'll put a little icon beside it instead of just changing the color of it. There's different ways I've seen it done. Mm -hmm. I think I think Blizzard's objective was to have it as seamless and integrated as possible. That way, you don't rest, you don't really break the fourth wall any more than necessary. Mm -hmm. So speaking of World of Warcraft, we'll just get this out of the way. That way I don't spend the rest of the podcast talking about it. <laughs> the default interface is... I don't like it as much. There's too many bars. It's sufficient. It's, it's just kind of cluttered. Yeah, so I've uh, added a couple of uh, mods to change the way the original user interface looks. I've gotten rid of the sidebars and I have all my bars at the bottom. I even... And I'm using dominoes for that. So I have four bars stacked. And my health bars are represented by Mistra's Diablo orbs. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's one of the biggest issues I found in the default World of Warcraft interface is mm -hmm. that your health and your magic power or whatever your resource is, yeah. they're tucked away in this teeny tiny little top left-hand corner of the screen. Mm -hmm. So your health is important because if you're low on health, you want to know that you have to get out of something or heal yourself or just take immediate action, but when it's on this teeny tiny little corner of the screen, like top left corner of, uh, of uh, uh, most of all, it's far away from the other bits of information that you'd be looking at, like your character positioning. So you and I both used mods to move, to increase the size of our health and our resource and to move them closer to the position of our character. Yeah, I use uh, Mistress Diablo Org because those are the most uh, noticeable for me. And for the actual action bars, I use dominoes because I can uh, set those up so I can see all my skills immediately and have, and I even configured my um, my keybinds to uh, be appropriate so I have everything laid out exactly the way it needs to be so I don't have to think about where anything is. Before I used uh, these two, we uh, used something called Tuck UI, which is... Um, <laughs> Basically, it compacted everything so it fit right on the bottom of the screen and took up very little room. It gave you more um, real estate to actually see what was happening. 
Yeah, TuckUI is interesting. Like, this is similar to what I was saying before about Android, how you can install uh, just a, uh, a theme. What did I call it? Shit. Um, a launcher. You can install a launcher, which replaces several elements of your screen all in one, and there will be like a monolithic update that will make updates to everything. You don't have to manage the individual mods one by one. Or there was the exposed framework, which lets you tweak little tiny things and install a separate mod for each individual element. And that's a lot more work, and sometimes the compatibility breaks. So Bianca and I both used to use TuckUI, which was like a launcher. It would replace many elements on the screen all in one, and every now and then it'd release a new version of TuckUI. You would just install that one thing, and then you would accept all of the changes. Mm -hmm. And it was great, because it, it, uh, it's very informative and it's compact. It does away with the aesthetic of the WoW's vanilla Blizzard UI, which has like flourishes and designs and like the brown kind of earthen uh, earthen and stone kind of colors. Mm -hmm. Instead, it's just very minimalistic and square and yeah. kind of gets out of your way, yeah. but it's a little bit immersion-breaking. What I like about Mistress Diablo Orbs is that it does keep some of those flourishes that, that is in the original Blizzard UI. Yeah, that's right. So yeah, what Bianca and I do now that we sort of outgrew Tuck UI is we installed, we probably have like a good 10 mods or so that customize the tiny elements of our, of our UI, yeah? Mm -hmm. So we do it like the exposed framework style where we actually go through all the trouble to manage these little individual things. We'll have like one add-on for our health bars and one add-on for the icons that are on screen and one add-on for the chat window. One, one add-on specifically for enemy health bars so that way you can change the way the, the uh, bar appears so you can make the bars bigger and more obvious so you can easily click it and you don't have to worry about missing an enemy. We, we even have... Uh, we even have it so we can uh, change our font. So we have so some fonts are more obvious than others. Mm -hmm. I'll see if uh, I'm, I'm not subscribed to WoW now, but I'll see whether Bianca and I can include screenshots of our UIs because uh, we have both customized our WoW UIs to our own preferences, which is really neat. Both of our UIs look quite different from each other. We've used kind of different philosophies based on the way that we play the game or the types of characters that we play. Um, I know you like casters and healers mm -hmm. uh, and ranged characters, whereas I have some more melee characters. But I do have a few ranged characters, and I had to make some adjustments to make it appropriate to both of those types of gameplay. You don't have a lot of melee characters, do you? Nope. I am trying Warrior again. Mm -hmm. I'm being fair to it because I know you like it, and, you, and I know that it has some uh, perks, but I've been primarily a ranged person in MMOs my entire uh, career. Mm-hmm. So I've got a few. Uh, cause I got a few screenshots. I'll give those to Brian. Yeah, I'll find some, and I'll add, I added a screenshot to Tuck UI as well, which kind of gave us an idea of what was possible. But the more you play, the more you realize that you want to modify little individual things, which became harder to do with Tuck UI. You could change the config files, mm -hmm. but whenever you installed an update, it would undo all your changes, and you'd have to remember where they were. And the more changes you make, the less appropriate it becomes to update things monolithically. Mm -hmm. So moving on from this, um, I think the next big one was The Sims because that one you can really see that you can't you can't mod the UI for the most part. I'm sure you can, but we never we never did we never did. And any mods we did do, we'll talk about next. We'll talk about on an, another episode where we talk about actual game mods. Mm -hmm. 
and not just specific and not just uh, mods for the user interface. Mm -hmm. But yeah, Sims Two is where I didn't really play Sims One, so I can't comment on uh, that one at all. And I haven't played Sims One since it was new, so I don't really remember it very well. But I remember Sims the Sims Two UI. It was extremely cluttered, especially when you consider that we had a lot less screen real estate space in a day. Yeah, that's right. They didn't have widescreen monitors, and geez, by the time you installed half the expansions, they had added one little button here and there, and it got really complicated. Yeah, one little button here and there, more tabs, and you know what to do with, and just so much information. And the uh, and then. The, once you even added the pet expansion, you had like two columns of icons for diff representing different members of your family. Mm -hmm. Sims 3 was a little better about that, but it didn't really improve it that much. Although they reduced some of the complexity in Sims 3 in general. Like yeah. you had eight uh, needs, each with its own like progress bar or status bar in Sims 2. And then yeah. I think you only had six in yeah. Sims 3. So that freed up some of the real estate and made it easier to scan it and to glance at it and fewer fewer needs that you had to babysit for your sim. I remember one of one one of them was environment. Oh, I know. So if your if your house was a miserable sack of shit, your house could have been clean, but if you didn't have, but if you had no decor because you were because uh, your ass was so broke, <laughs> your bed had springs coming out of it. Mm -hmm. Your sim was a miserable little cunt. Or even if you had a wonderful, comfortable bed, but you didn't have like a tree and a and a painting in your room, that might not be enough to keep your sim satisfied. You would suffer for it because it wasn't pretty enough. And that really emphasized the whole like consumerism aspect of the game. So they kind of downplayed that more over time. And it became instead, you got like, instead of, you know, having to deal with a depreciated mood because of that, in the in Sims three and four, you got the mood enhancers if you had in this environment. The only time you suffered mood depreciation was if you had actual filth, which is nice. Mm -hmm. So as long as your house was clean, your sim wasn't unhappy with the environment. That's right. Unless you were you chose yourself to be a slob personality, and then you loved it when it was sloppy. Mm -hmm. Sims three, yeah, it had a pretty decent interface, but now the Sims four, if you it's extra. You have like your one sim popping up on the, the one you have selected popping up on the left hand side. The uh, actually uh, menu bars are tucked away in the upper right hand corner. And then the rest of the sims family appears in a small little bar across the bottom. And your needs, you can minimize all, and then you can minimize all the other uh, information panels. So that way you have almost nothing showing aside from the, uh, aside from the immediate information about your one controlled sim. Oh gosh, and that doesn't—that that just looks like the vanilla UI for Sims Two. Yeah, I'm gonna put some screenshots to the three Sims games, just to show the different interfaces. EA is really good about this stuff. They do a lot of research about uh, mm -hmm. how this stuff should be done. So they kind of went. Sims Two was more putting everything on screen all at once. Mm -hmm. uh, Sims Three puts a lot of information on the screen still, but it, they allowed you to minimize some areas so that you don't see them until you expand it. And they changed some things where instead of putting all information on the screen at once, they made a tabbed interface. Yeah. So they do a lot of usability testing and stuff. I mean, Sims is like, Sims is like the McDonald's of games, right? It's like the most, uh, the most uh, lowest common denominator, uh, happy and enjoyable by anyone kind of a game. So they really try their best to make sure that everyone can understand it and get the most out of it. What's a guy got to do to find a decent resolution picture of a friggin' Sims game? Jeez. I don't know. Try configuring. Yeah, there you go. 
large. You're large. <laughs> but yes. Hmm. Sims. I'll worry about the screenshot. You talk to our guests. Okay, so you, you were talking about Sims Four. That was very minimal. Mm -hmm. That was it's extremely minimal, and you have and you can just by glancing at your sim, you know immediately what their problem is. You don't even need to look at their needs. Their the needs bar. You can just look at their mood, and you know that they're hungry, miserable, and otherwise uh, about to uh, go homicidal on you if they could. <laughs> yeah, so things will kind of pop up contextually, or. Uh, it, or well, that, how do how do we describe the Sims Four interface? Really, like there's a there's things that are expandable that only pop up when it's relevant, and that's if you decide to expand them. Like I don't even have I can go through the entire game without ever expanding my needs panel or anything like that. Yeah, that's right. Because you'll have one little icon in the bottom right that sort of summarizes the most urgent thing going on. Like if you're hungry, you get a pair. Of, you get a knife and fork crossed over each other. Yeah, like if it's you not. Have, a if you have to go to the bathroom, you get toilet appearing. If you're tired, there's a there's a red battery. That's right. So it's like not important to you if you're eighty nine percent if your stomach is eighty nine percent full. But if your stomach is twenty five percent full, that's important. And the little icon appears at the bottom, and you can even click it, and then it'll automatically walk you over to eat the nearest thing, doesn't it? Yep. That's actually if you have the uh, the contextual uh, needs menu open. Mm -hmm. So quite a smart UI, quite polished, and it really puts a huge emphasis. There's a good picture of it. It puts a terrific emphasis on the gameplay window. Mm-hmm. Oh, it seems that we got... I'll, I'll find the damn okay. picture. It's stupid. Why don't people take a decent screenshot, you sons of bitches? <laughs> I hate you all. Yeah, me mutter, too. Mutter, <laughs> But yeah, this third one, I think, was sort of... They were coming into terms with what needed to be done, but it was still a little busy. I like where it has gone now, and I'm glad that, uh, but I'm, but I was disappointed at first when they did remove one aspect of the UI, which was the family tree, because it was never in the way at all. Even in the second Sims, it was never in the way, but then they, when they removed it, it was, you really missed it. And it wasn't, and it's, and it was just a nice part of the UI that gave you the information that you wanted without being at all in the way. And I couldn't believe that they'd removed it from the fourth game and that we had to demand it back. That's true. And that's an interesting balance that you have to strike. And we've kind of seen different philosophies about this in user interface design in general over the history of video games. And that is um, kind of your ability as a player to see through the matrix, as it were. Like you, Once you're sufficiently familiar with a game, you're less interested in the story being told and more interested in the underlying systems. Mm -hmm. So in the earlier Sims games... You had all this data right in front of you, and you knew whether you were either 89% full or 86% full. And maybe that's important to you, and maybe it's not. But basically, the game became a matter of managing your different meters and your different bars to make sure that you're optimally uh, satisfied, and that you can sort of anticipate the little and act in advance of little emergencies. Whereas in the later Sims game, the latest Sims game, Sims 4, you can see that information, but it's not immediately apparent, or sometimes they hide that information entirely, the, like the family tree stuff, for example, or other things. Um, and that makes you focus a little bit more on the moment and a little bit more on the story being told and the immediacy of the action more than the data behind it. So there's different kinds of gamers who enjoy one kind of a gameplay versus another. Oh, there's a good screenshot. Pardon me, people. I'm just talking to my wife. I'll try not to do that ever again. <laughs> <laughs> What a tiny, crappy little picture. Oh, well. So different strokes for different folks, basically. Some people in an RPG like to know 
Like WoW is a great example. Yeah. Where you can see like voluminous, extremely detailed bits of information about exactly every little aspect of your character, like how, what frac what hundredth of a percent you will miss a target when you swing at it, or uh, what are what are some other really minute things you can that you know from WoW. Let's see. You can see heals per second. You might want to know um, how much damage each dot is doing as opposed to an overall summary of the damage. So you might want to know per tick. You might want to know, you might want to emphasize um, crit over, um, they don't have glancing blows, so that's irrelevant. Oh yeah, they used to, didn't they? Yeah, they used to have glancing blows, but they removed that. That's right. So even WoW is reducing its, its complexity. There used to be things like armor penetration and, I don't know, lots of other additional detail. Absorption. is As a healer, you probably want to know uh, amount of health healed per tick, overall health healed, and you want to know absorption as well, like how much damage was absorbed. For example, there's a class of healers, a priest, that has a, a shield that protects the... Uh, the target and that uh, it absorbs a certain amount of damage and you want to know how much it's been absorbed before it's dispelled mm -hmm. or how much or before it's used up or another example would have been haste where bianca mentioned like a dot which is a damage over time mm -hmm. so that let's say a damage over time means that you'll cast a spell on somebody and it will hurt them a certain amount once every well depending on your haste let's say um it'll hurt somebody once every 1.1 seconds and the, the spell lasts for four seconds. So depending on your haste, you can make that spell do the damage more frequently. So instead of every 1.1 second, it will do it every one second, which is significant. Because if it's doing it once every 1.1 seconds for four seconds, that means it'll only hit three times at 1.1, 2.2, and 3.3. If you increase your haste a little bit, and it increases it to once every one second, then it will do... It will do uh, a third more damage because it will hit four times at one, two, three, and four seconds. But then, um, if you didn't know about that, that's called a cap, or the, yeah, that's known as a, a haste cap. Mm -hmm. um, if you weren't aware of your haste cap and you kept adding to your haste, it might mean that that skill damages every 0 0.9 seconds. So it would hit at 0 0.9 and then 1.8 and then 2.7 and then 3.6. Uh, but it still wouldn't hit after the four second. Uh, points because it only lasts for four seconds. So you, you may have invested valuable resources into haste that had absolutely no benefit because it because that's the way it works. Mm -hmm. So for the people that really wanted to minutely manage their characters, that you had the tools to do that, where in, you you could shave off little insignificant bits of output and dedicate them to other resources like your accuracy or your damage or whatever. And there was this very, very careful balance that you would have to strike. And every time you got one new piece of gear, you would have to rebalance all those statistics through reforging or what have you, or, or whatever. So some people like that kind of complexity. For the people that aren't competitive, you don't have to worry about any of that. But if you start to get competitive and you wonder why someone who seems exactly like you is doing so much better every time those little bits of detail can make all the difference. And whether or not a game reveals those tiny, minute little things to you is uh, uh, its just a matter of the philosophy of the game, I suppose. <clears throat> um, should I take a few? Yes, go ahead. Okay. So I talk about... I'm not going to talk in as much detail about every game that I did about Wing Commander. I, I um, 
in a few cases, I just chose individual moments of games that had a fun interface. Mm -hmm. Why don't I start with that just as a little palate cleanser? Um, so one thing I really liked is in Space Quest Four. The Space Quest Four UI is pretty uh, predictable for the most part. Um, I mean, uh, the only thing that kind of differentiates Space Quest Four from the other Sierra point-and-click games is that it added a taste and smell icon. Sorry, taste and smell icons, two <laughs> different icons, which uh, Trolls uh, mentioned on his Space Quest Historian podcast, I believe, was the reason was that it was originally going to be a text parser game, but they were asked by Ken Williams to make it a point-and-click game, which the designers, the two guys from Andromeda, weren't really thrilled with because they thought it made the game too easy. So they increased the complexity a little bit by adding these two additional verbs. Maybe it, maybe it doesn't make the game any harder, but it gave it a little bit more flavor text. No pun intended. So <clears throat> I'm not going to talk any more about that part of the user interface. What I will talk about, though, is this one scene where you go into a software store and you have to dig through this discount bin <laughs> of a whole bunch of uh, games on sale. Um, and it's just in, it just involves like a huge pile of boxes that are all piled on top of each other, and you have to drag them to the side. They're all just like two-dimensional <laughs> things. You have to drag the boxes all over the place till you get to the good thing at the bottom. And it's really fun kind of digging around through this clutter. I read something uh, a while ago about uh, Walmart, how in their, like, close to their electronics and media section, they'll always have this humongous bin of discount DVDs, and it's completely disorganized, and you wonder why the hell are they so lazy that they don't put them in stacks or put them on shelves or label them, and they could very well do that, but they did some studies that said that people have this kind of a foraging instinct, just like birds, where they enjoy having a big pile of something and digging through because they think, oh, I must be able to find this one treasure in here. <laughs> and that was a very effective way to get them to have people look at the variety of merchandise. So instead of zeroing in on the one thing they want, they have to look at the, the names and titles and boxes of all these things. And they would invariably purchase more things because something looked interesting to them that they may not have looked at otherwise. It is, that is interesting. <laughs> as a consumer, I'm insulted, but as... But from a scientific point of view, that's actually quite fascinating, the psychology behind this. Yeah, I thought so, too. It's kind of like an economic psychology sort of a thing. That's very fascinating. So mm -hmm. they, Walmart is brilliant at this kind of stuff. They've kind of found all the most efficient ways of selling things to you. So I always enjoyed that. So that, that I really enjoyed that in Space Quest Four. just the interface of having to uh, click around and drag through all this clutter. There's a similar scene in uh, Laura Bow, Dagger of Amun-Ra. Uh, right in the first chapter of the game where you ride in an extremely filthy cab and it has this huge pile of gross paper on the seat next to you. <clears throat> and while you're traveling from one location to another, you have just enough time to, one by one, pick through these little gross pieces of paper and move them elsewhere on the seat beside you until you end up finding, I think, someone's wallet. <laughs> so I do enjoy that little foraging aspect. So that's all I wanted to say about, about those games. Um... <clears throat> I'm also going to say a quickie about Elite Dangerous before I get too far from the uh, space-themed games that I keep talking about. Yeah. Um, Elite Dangerous, similar to Wing Commander and probably, I'm sure, inspired by the original Elite games, which I'm not familiar with, but in Elite Dangerous, you also have these two consoles, one on the left, one on the right, that you can look at, monitors. Mm -hmm. but what's awesome about Elite is that um, <clears throat> as soon as you look over at a monitor, then it becomes interactive. So... 
your joystick ordinarily flies you around in space and controls your your whole craft. But if you look over to the side, suddenly your joystick will start to control the interface that you're looking at. Or if you were using a uh, the face tracking software that you did for a while, mm-hmm. then uh, if you, when you turned your head, it would actually interact that way and turn it towards it, which was really interesting. Isn't that cool? Just to watch the menu pop up. So you didn't even have to use your joystick. That's right. Same with Oculus Rift, apparently. Any head tracking uh, device. Um, instead, Usually when you play the game with a joystick or whatever, you will you might press a button and that will turn your head 90 degrees to the side or whatever, 70 degrees to the side to look at your monitor. But if you have a head tracking device of some sort, you can actually turn your neck to the side. And if, as soon as you've passed the threshold and looked just enough to the side, the monitor kind of whoop, it appears in front of you, which looks really awesome. But just the the mechanics of uh, revealing the UI to you in that fashion and the way that it gets out of your way when you're obviously just looking around and trying to look out the window at the spaceship that has flown past you, then it doesn't bother you. But when you actually turn your head to look where your monitor should be, it appears and then takes over your, your field of view. That's smart programming right there. Clearly, they they uh, they did it on purpose so that way it would not... So it didn't interfere. That took some. That sounds like it took some precise programming to react in that way. No question. To uh, know when the uh, user was intending just to look out the window, even if they were looking in the vague direction of a certain monitor. Yeah, absolutely. It's very smart, and not only is it great, really nice game programming and game design, but it also kind of strikes me from an immersion standpoint as. Like if you were buying a spaceship from someone in the future, that's the kind of feature you would want your spaceship to have so that it, so that your vision isn't obstructed during combat or something. So that game is phenomenally good at immersion in general. It like never breaks you out of real time, as far as I know. It's always real-time view from the pilot's eyes. Um, what about if you crash? If you crash, Jan can be blown up. Oh, yes. I think I've only I've blown up a few times, actually. Um, yeah, if you crash, then it shows your spaceship from externally, I think. Mm. That was something cool that Wing Commander did, by the way. It did the same sort of a thing. I mean, you could there were buttons in Wing Commander that let you view, <clears throat> view your ship externally. And in Elite, on purpose, they do not allow you to do that. The only time you can see your ship externally is if you're buying a new ship, and you can kind of turn it around and see what it looks like. That makes sense. I mean, you're going to want to see what it looks <clears throat> like. Mm-hmm. But in Wing Commander, when your ship was about to explode... Um, First, the screen would like turn red or something, and you would like uh, you would see all your interfaces turn red and the the cockpit turn red. Then it would turn the camera around and show your face, and your face would kind of turn red, and you would kind of scowl your face into a screen, and you would lift your hands in front of your face to block your face from the fire. And then finally, yeah, exactly. And then finally, you would show your your ship explode, <laughs> and then a whole bunch of debris flying out freely in all directions. So that was fun too. Any fleshy gooey lumps no fleshy gooey lumps unfortunately oh, what else we have um looks like we have call of duty that was an interesting one <clears throat> yeah what do we say about call of duty well we said that the first what call of duty one or the first call of duty and uh, call of duty united offensive they had health packs and so you couldn't just duck behind when you took damage you had to uh make sure that you had to uh duck and take your time and make sure that you didn't get uh, blown up because you don't either you wouldn't know when your next health pack was available. Because you had a good chance of encountering a health pack when you had a full health bar and not finding one when you had a smidgen of health and your bar was red. Mm-hmm. And it was also... Um, 
I think the first Call of Duty actually had a number for your health, and not even a bar. Yeah. If I'm remembering right, so that was another indication of like game design giving you probably more information than you needed to know. Like a, a gamer would know that your character is down to 16% health, but in real life, you would probably you wouldn't know with such precision. Yeah, you know, I'm I'm bleeding out this wound. That's right, and yet. <laughs> No blood's coming out, and I can run as fast as and jump as high as I could before I got shot in both kneecaps. <laughs> Games. <clears throat> so, and then it was Call of Duty 2 that got rid of it and brought in uh, the rest thing. I've been shot. Maybe if I just breathe heavily while hiding behind this block, the, na the Nazis won't see me. That's right. I'll start panting like a pug. <laughs> and suddenly, oh, all better. <laughs> Although what I did appreciate is everyone is suddenly a fucking medic if you're playing multiplayer. At least in... Uh, World at War, everyone's a fucking medic, you know. Oh, that's right. You just run up to the nearest corpse and give him a nice, uh, a nice friendly pat down. Uh, pat down. Boing. <laughs> and they jump back up and they're all happy. <laughs> that was a cool thing, actually. This, I guess, isn't that related, but I'll say it anyway. This was in Medal of Honor Pacific Assault, which was kind of a... It was a first-place shooter and it was squad-based. <clears throat> and I think it was only single-player. Um, but you were... You eventually become like the commander of your little unit, whatever you call it, the leader of your unit of like four, of three or four people, or four people, I think. Um, <clears throat> and one of the people in your unit was a medic, but only one of the, the people. So he could resurrect you. He had a chance to resurrect you, and only a, a limited number of times. So I love the, in first person seeing that kind of a thing because you get you get shot enough that you fall over, and basically it's a race to see whether your medic gets to you first safely. Or if the enemy comes to you and finishes you off. And it's crazy. This is great for user interface, actually, now that I mention it. If the enemy gets to you first, it still stays in first person. Like, you you crumple to the ground and you're looking up at the sky. Um, if the enemy gets to you first, you'll see one of those, uh, one of those uh, terrible foreigners uh, walk up to you and, like, look you in the eye. And he holds up his gun and it's right into the middle of the camera. And you hear bang and it just goes dark. Um, or if the medic comes to you, this is so awesome. The medic gets to you. There's a few different animations that it will play, but they basically involve him either putting a bandage on you or sprinkling some kind of a powder on you. Or, sprinkle, sprinkle, sprinkle. That's right, the magical sprinkles, the pixie <laughs> dust, or um, injecting you with a syringe. And still in first person, so he'll kneel, uh, kneel down to you and he'll get real close and maybe he'll like put his ear to your chest or something like that. Or my very favorite of all will be he'll kind of kneel down and get close to you He'll look at you, then he turns his head aside, he goes, Bleh! and he vomits on the ground because <laughs> he can't stand the sight of the condition that you're in. And then he'll give you the magical pat down, and then you're all better. That's great. It I, is great. I don't, I don't vaguely, I vaguely remember that. I played a bit of it. Oh, the barf is the best. Oh, that's fantastic. It's really, really cool. That's a phenomenally good immersion uh, technique. Um... That game also had a, something that I never played with because it was annoying and made the game harder. But it, uh, sometimes you get a wound that would make you bleed. So not only would you lose damage by being shot, like and you'd lose a finite amount of damage, but if you were bleeding, you would also kind of have your health tick down slowly. And you had a finite number of bandages that you could use to plug your <laughs> your hole. <laughs> yeah, like a, like a wine ball cork. <laughs> Boink. <laughs> they made the game even harder, and the game was hard enough as is, mm -hmm. so I didn't play it that way. That was another game, though, that had uh, health as a number. Yeah, but didn't it actually have health as a number as, like, three pips? And uh, if you, if as long as you didn't empty that pip, it would regenerate? No. Um, 
Or am I thinking of a different Medal of Honor, Airborne? You might be right. I can't remember now. No, that was Airborne for sure. Let me see. Uh, it was Airborne, Pacific Assault, and then... Pacific Assault came before that. Let me see if I can find a picture of the UI somewhere. Yeah, your health is just a number. Oh, okay, I must have had Air uh, Pacific. I must have had Airborne. That's what you're thinking Airborne. of. Yeah, Airborne was more kind of the Halo sort of a style thing. Mm-hmm. Um, but that number isn't terribly intrusive because because it was cause the first call of the first two Call of Duties, not like Call of Duty Two, but the United Defense and uh, Call of Duty One mm-hmm. had that whole bar across the bottom. That was <laughs> painfully obvious. Call of Duty One. I thought it had a. Uh, I thought that had a number as well. Maybe I'm wrong. Oh, it does have a bar. You're right. That's right. So it's a bar that goes from that empties towards the left. That's right. It changes color from green, yellow, red. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> All right, you are. Um, do we have something else about color? Oh, right. Then there was modern warfare too. Yeah, and the so-called strawberry preserves. That's right. That's where, so that, all of the future Call of Duty games and almost every first-person shooter from then on had the uh, breathe like a pug to heal mode instead of having to heal yourself with a health pack or a medic or something like that. Um, then finally, Call of Duty Modern Warfare 2 built on that, where if you get shot enough, you get these like big blood splatters all over your screen, but it looks like, uh, it looks like in Spaceballs when the radar is jammed. I'll say no more than that. That's mm-hmm. basically the analogy. I found that in uh, Black Ops, it's really bloody when you when you get shot. Like I I, I couldn't I, the first time I got shot, I'm like what the hell? I couldn't I couldn't see very well, so I couldn't even get out of the way because <laughs> there was just so much blood on screen. I mean, I have no problem with the blood. I was just surprised at how much they splatter when you get shot. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and then it just kind of wipes away. I know it's a miracle. Oh, I forgot to mention something when I was talking about Space Quest Four and Dagger of Amun Ra. And that is Ultima Seven, and I'm sure these are the first. This is the first time anyone has ever equated these three games together. Mm-hmm. But Ultima Seven, I played. I played a little bit, and I didn't. Did I play it with cheats? No, I played it like in the modern Exalt engine, which had some kind of refinements, I believe, and I think it made the game a lot easier in some ways as well. But uh, what reminds me, what, what part of Ultima Seven that reminds me of uh, the Space Quest Four software store? Uh, uh, foraging is the infamous man purse. <laughs> <laughs> so in Ultima Seven, uh, you know a lot of RPGs will have like a, a representation of your backpack, and it will be like a nice neat grid. And it's either like one item fits into one square of the grid, or maybe it's a Tetris sort of a thing where an item takes up like six slots of the grid because it's a big item, and you can only have so many squares full. Um, Ultima Seven, though. Uh, there was no kind of physicality to it like that. There was just the amount of weight that you could carry. But, ah, so like Skyrim and Oblivion. Yeah. So Skyrim and Oblivion have that nice like list, a text list of all the stuff that you can choose through, like a, like a spreadsheet, an Excel spreadsheet. Ultima 7 was like, it was just like the Space Quest 4 thing. You would have like these 2D sprites in this in this tiny little bag and you would have to drag them around and put some things actually physically on top of the others. And you would really have to dig through your purse to find your car keys, basically. But this is a gigantic open-world role-playing game. Like, Bianca, imagine... How would you describe the number of items that you have in your World of Warcraft bank storage? Uh, 
Um, I gave up on trying to sort it. How many slots do you uh, have in there? Let's see. I have my default bag, which I think is 30. And then everything else is 28 slots. And then I have... And you have um, like seven of those? All my all my bank bags are 20, or 28 slots. And my uh, regular bags are 28 slots. Right. So, so you have like 280 slots or so, let's say. And those are all neat little squares. And each item goes into one square, yeah. right? So imagine that, but you had little 2D sprites and you had to dig through them one by one to find the thing at the bottom. And then reorganize it again. Ugh. It sucked. That sounds like it would suck. I should put... We should, I should, you want me to put a screenshot of my uh, horrible inventory? Yes, I do. <laughs> it's frightening how much garbage you accumulate in that game that you don't want to throw away because maybe it'll be useful at some point in the future or it was meaningful to you when you got it and you don't want to discard it so readily. Especially since they added toys. Mm -hmm. as, as soon as you heard they were adding toys, you, stopped, you just started hoarding everything. It was pathetic. Mm-hmm. And then you wouldn't throw anything after that because you never knew what they were going to make into a toy. That's right. So at least in Ultima 7's defense, you could put bags inside of your backpack and organize some things like that. Ultima Underworld did this too. But uh, it was a little more forgiving because you had, I forget, six or eight little slots. And you could put six or eight bags in those slots and put items inside those bags or bags inside those bags to kind of compartmentalize things. And Ultima Underworld had a bug, too, where I think if you made the hierarchy of bags inside of bags too deep, then it would start to forget items that you would put in there. <laughs> no, I think actually it was the other way around. If you had more than, like, seven items in a bag or something, then it would start to forget them. So you had to put bags inside of bags inside of bags in order to make sure you didn't have more than seven items in the bag. But the bags themselves weighed something, so it was really complicated. <laughs> that sounds unnecessarily complicated. I think so. And I haven't played any of the Ultimas before 7, but both Ultima Underworld and Ultima 7 had something called the Paper Doll, which I really liked. And that is your representation of your avatar, of your character. And if you wanted to equip an item, you would drag it out of your bag and put it on top of the Paper Doll. And then it would show the Paper Doll wearing the item. And I mean, it's called the Paper Doll, but I mean, it's like a, it looks three-dimensional. It's just like a sprite that looks like your character. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> but I really liked that a lot. That was a great UI convention, I thought, to represent what you're wearing and what it looks like. That is the silliest thing I've ever heard. You pull up basically your paper... You, so you commit voodoo on yourself using clothing. <laughs> Not the voodoo doll, the paper doll. So I guess this is instead of, you know, some games... <coughs> uh, is Diablo an example? I guess Diablo is an example. Where, like, there might be a picture of a body with little arrows pointing to the different parts of the body, and there's a square beside each of the arrows. So there's like a, a square, an arrow, and the arrow is pointing at the head on the model. And you would put a hat into the square where with the arrow pointing at the head. And that's, that, that shows you like what gear you have for each body part versus the paper doll, where instead of having a square and an arrow in the head, you would just drag the, the hat onto the depiction of your head. And then your head is wearing that hat on the paper doll. So it's a nice, concise, compact way to represent what you have equipped hmm. without too much complexity. But it can also make it difficult. If you have, like, gloves and bracers and a shirt, sometimes it's hard to just drag the bracers, which are between the gloves and the shirt. Sometimes you take your shirt off by accident. <laughs> that's that's unbelievable. As, and I'm still sticking by my uh, voodoo doll statement because you're committing voodoo on yourself by making yourself wear armor. Instead of instead of you know using a pinpoint to make yourself bleed from there, you put a you put some bracers and they automatically and they, and they appear on your body. Oh right, 
<laughs> That'd be awesome. I wish I could like I wish I had a, a voodoo doll of my boss or something and I put like a feather boa on it. <laughs> yeah. Um well let's talk about the other end of the spectrum then I guess because the paper doll I thought was a nice elegant simplified way of representing a user interface. And on the end of the other end of the spectrum is Neverwinter Nights. Oh gosh. You finished Neverwinter Nights. I I know. I don't know patience. how I did it. I don't know. Well you cheated, didn't you? I cheated on the final, final, final boss. Like, is that all? Yeah. I got through everything. It was just that I couldn't get past the boss. And it was just like, I gave up. I'm like, okay, where's God mode? That's impressive. That's very far. That's farther than I ever came to. So that game... I don't remember the story. And this is just, and I'm surprised I played that long. This is a game with a lot of text and it a sure lot is. of story. You're very dedicated to that game. I'm really impressed. Yeah. I don't even know how to play that game properly still because the UI is so complicated. I know. I mean... It's it's one I don't mind a complicated UI, but there comes a point where it's just ridiculous the amount of information. And I mean, it's it's necessary for a game like that because that's a real, true open world sandbox kind of a game. Yeah, and it's true to the D and D style where you roll a dice to get your uh, results. That's it exactly because it is based on the Dungeons and Dragons uh, rule set, which has tons of complexity and iteration and little minute like modifiers for not only can you do something, but you can do it in different ways. And so the way they represent that is radial menus with like endlessly telescoping uh, uh, like branches, which I is know. crazy. So they'll have a radial menu with like 16 different elements and you hover over one of them and it will show you a sub-radial menu with 12 different elements. And you hover over one of those, and it has a list of five different ways that you can do that sub-sub option. So it's really, really cumbersome. And I guess it's necessary. I don't know. A nice thing, the nice thing about radial menus, I guess, is that you can make it compatible with analog joysticks, so you can tilt your joystick in that direction. Pardon. Oh, Gesundheit, sweetie. Pardon. Pass me Phoenix. Yes, dear. Oh, you're going to honk for the show? Honk. Oh, that's Funny. cute. <laughs> well done. Yeah. I lost my train of thought now. Radio About menus the radio are, menus and joysticks. Oh, right, 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 with joysticks. Yes, yeah, so you can like turn your joystick into a certain direction and then activate, and then it'll open the submenu, and you can turn your joystick in that direction. It might have been... Deus Ex Invisible War that I saw that done first, if I'm remembering right. Mm -hmm. Maybe. I don't know. I don't know. But um, all that stuff, all that complexity became very important to the extended community of Neverwinter Nights. That game had a huge online community, which I tried to get into, but I just couldn't get into it somehow. Like I, It was so complicated that I just didn't care to learn all the mechanics and stuff. But they had, <clears throat> they had like dungeon crawler... Uh, communities for people that just wanted to do some simple questing. They had role-playing communities for uh, user-created areas that didn't have any combat whatsoever. And because the radial menus were so complicated, you had all these different ways of doing emotions or interacting with the world or using an item on something else or combining items to make cooking recipes and stuff like mm. that. That was really, really cool stuff. So there was no, there was no shortage to the extremely voluminous, deep multiplayer extended community of that game. Yeah. It's, oh, it was just so... And then... It, you, but I don't remember being able to ever change the interface, just that there's a lot of... Just a lot of it. So much of it. As much as anyone would ever need. 
was available for any interaction ever. Mm-hmm. So you really had to know that UI very, very well. And that's on top of the already complicated rules of the Dungeons & Dragons universe. Mm-hmm. And that, those were complicated enough on pen and paper. Yeah, exactly. So the UI didn't exactly simplify that. I'm sure it actually did simplify things in many ways, but it's it's very difficult for a layman to get started into. Yeah. It simplified the dice roll and result stuff, so at least it uh, was all pre-computated, so you didn't need your uh, your dungeon master. Oh, my gosh. I don't know how. I just talked myself into <laughs> wanting to play this again. I'm going to GOG to, uh, to download it. You remember when we bought... Uh, uh, Neverwinter Nights Diamond Edition, I think, for good oh old games. Oh my gosh, how long did it take us to figure out how to install it? That was insane. Oh no, the good old games Ooh. one, I think, was uh, Galactic M- Galactic Civilizations. Is that any good? Oh, I don't know. I never played it. Real time strategy game, I think. Sorry, we're going off on a tangent. Well, it's your fault for loading up the uh, GOG thing. Oh, I think this is like a four X expand, expand. Ex- I don't know. Fucking explore. Exterminate. I can't remember what the last X is. Um, well, we owned Neverwinter Nights Diamond Edition. Eesh. Where the shit is it? I, have, I don't know, God. There it is, yeah. Owned. We owned it on in a box. Yeah. And we played it together. We had two copies of it, and we played it together. That was the one that was really hard to install, because you had to... In, it had, like, four different installers... And then you had to do them in a certain order, and then you had to... I think you had to run it, and then do the next one or something. Something like that. Where the hell is it? Yeah, you had to run them in a certain order, and there were a bunch of patches you had to install in a certain order, and there were there were free um, content packs and stuff like that. There we go. I'm downloading this right now. So that was really complicated. Um, and then I think you had to like install some things and then update it, and then install this other thing and then update that. It's very complicated stuff. Mm-hmm. But... Um, so we had it on disc. Then I think we lost the disc version, or we had the di- we had the disc, but we didn't have the codes or something because there were like six product keys as well that you had to enter in, which was <laughs> so obnoxious. And I don't even think uh, the GOG version alleviates that frustration. <clears throat> Holy shit! It's five gigabytes. Oh well. Um, so then we bought it on GOG, and we wanted to play it multiplayer together. So we bought two versions of it. And then we found out that unless you email GOG support, you don't get a multiplayer compliant key. It's just a single player key. So we had to email them and we like begged them. We're like, oh, we bought it to play it this weekend. We'd appreciate it if you could get back to us. And I think they got back to us. Like we, we bought it on Friday night. And I think they emailed us on either like Saturday night or Sunday morning or something with our two keys. Mm-hmm. So that was frustrating. Then we then we logged on to the same server and didn't know what the shit we were doing and gave up on it. <laughs> that sounds about right. I don't know what I'm doing to convince myself to friggin' install this again, but somehow I have done that. Being, you're being a you're being a, you're being a masochist. I think so. Wow! It comes with a 212 page manual, in-game soundtrack. Look at all this awesome stuff. Premium modules reinstaller. That sounds like fun. Okay, sorry, I am meandering, folks. Mm-hmm. We're almost through our list. What else do we have? How are we doing on time? I don't know. Oh, well. Holy shit, we talked for a long time today, as usual. Yep, and it looks like we're actually almost at the end of our usual uh, three hours. Yeah, that's pretty usual. Okay, I'm going to skip a couple of mine. I think I'm almost ready to call it a day. Um, yep, and I, I think we've uh, said all we can. Well, I want to say one more thing, um, which is Dragon's Lair. 
So this is a game that has really frustrating controls, and it's debatable whether it's much of a game at all. I like it, but mostly for the multimedia aspects. But I think it's actually quite smart in terms of the user interface. So controls aside, the controls basically amount to pressing the joystick in the right direction or pressing your action button at the right time, and that's all there is to it. Uh, what I love about the user interface, though, is that there's no on-screen display. I think there, there's points. I think Dragon's Lair actually had a separate monitor that showed your points on the other monitor. Um, but uh, the only thing it shows on screen is your character and the scene. And when your character has to interact with something, an element in the screen, like a monster or your sword or a platform next to you, will flash in yellow. And you have to move your joystick or press your button if you move your joystick in the direction of that uh, flashing element uh, relative to the position of your character on the screen. I think that's really, really smart. Um, not only because of how limited the medium was, because it was a Laserdisc game, which meant that it would play a video clip from beginning to end, or it would interrupt it and play another video clip from the beginning, and that's all it knew how to do. Um, so the fact that, that it had to communicate things to you in that way, there were no dynamic elements that it could interpose at the right time. It was already like pre-rendered into the video itself. Um, but even just as a, as a philosophy, as a mechanism for communicating information on screen, just blinking something on screen, I thought was a very elegant way of telling you what you need to do and where it is in relation to your on-screen avatar. I think that's cool. Um, and especially, but particularly because you're so limited in the things that you can do, I thought it was just a, a clever way of communicating that stuff. Blah, whatever. Mm -hmm. Okay, so I think uh, we're good on uh, UIs. Are we good? I think so. I feel like we've only scratched the surface, and we did kind of delve a little more into controls than I wanted to. Yeah, than about exactly. UI. Yeah. But uh, we, as always invite you to uh, get in touch with us by email or Twitter or whatever mm -hmm. and let us know about some UI games, U, uh, game UIs or even individual scenes in games that had something unique in them. Oh, oh! before I before we close this topic, I want to give yet another shout to Francisco about A Golden Wake because one thing that I like about this game so much and even, you know, the criticism that you had of his one puzzle there, yeah. he has a really good variety of different puzzles. Yes, he does. And and I like the logic one, figuring out which like which house is suited to which person. That was a very hard one for him to design. I remember I, I beta tested that game, and a lot of the descriptions changed. Yeah. And that was part of my feedback too, that it wasn't clear to me what you were supposed to do exactly and why. And he fixed it a little bit. Maybe there's room for improvement, but I f it's, yeah. it's pretty intuitive, and it's, you feel rewarded yeah. for figuring yeah, it out. Yeah, there's two obvious ones, which is nice, and then it kind of by uh, having the two obvious ones. It helps eliminate two of them, and then it makes it the final four choices a little easier once you read between the lines. Yeah, process of elimination. Mm -hmm. I appreciate that. And there was another one where you could fail without uh, without uh, any. Uh, my brain is, is yeah, and I think I think those were the seller. Those were the ones. Yeah, those were the ones where you had to convince people to do stuff. For example, I know that there was the bank robbery where you had to convince the guy to give up a life of. Uh, yeah, and that's I like that too. That was an optional one. Mm -hmm. Like you, you, you could win. That one did have consequence, and you would have to live with it. But uh, that just gives the game some replayability because it's great to see how it works out both ways. Oh, I managed to survive. I'm going. Oh, I lived. Hmm. In the beta, I talked him out of it on my first try, 
And I tried to do it in the final one, and I picked the wrong thing. But that's okay. And then that in, that choice comes back to affect you later on a little bit as well. Oh, yeah, because he becomes the, uh, the, the moon, moonshiner. The moonshiner. <laughs> and you're like, don't walk toward the house. Shiny McShine. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, my favorite mini game that he put into his game was where you're doing the, the home inspection of the guy who's reluctant to move. And it's basically a hidden object game. Oh my gosh. I did that in like, in like 30 seconds. So did I, but it was very enjoyable. It was. And Actually, I think I might've done it in less than 30 seconds because of all my uh, hidden object experience. I'm like, doink, doink, doink. I think so. But what I liked was, you know, a hidden object game at the bottom of the screen, it will say a list of objects that you have to find. And on the top, it will have like a cluttered scene. And, uh, Francisco's game had that too, except instead of a list of objects that you had to find, it had like a list of potential faults that a house could have that would disqualify it from being properly certified. And so you had to kind of do this, uh, you had to follow the logic a little bit where it might say cracked tiles and somebody might have tiles on the floor or on the wall or on the ceiling even. So looking for cracked tiles, you had to find, you had to search the whole scene until something matched that description. I, it was very easy, but I didn't care. I thought that was very clever and well implemented. Yeah, I, that, was that was a really clever fun. puzzle because it didn't clutter the scene and it left and it still left the interface feeling sleek without uh, breaking immersion by having a bunch of shit in a dude's house. That's right. So even though even though one or two of the puzzles might have been kind of clunky, I really have to credit the guy for having such a variety of different tasks that you could do, and it it was right in line with a very non-standard protagonist, like your protagonist. For most of the game, he's like a real estate uh, broker or agent or whatever. Yeah, salesman, it sounds like. Salesman. And there, he thought of many different ways of translating that concept into gameplay mechanics. Mm-hmm. So kudos, dude. All right. That's enough uh, apple polishing for one day, I think. <laughs> My brain is really not working well today. I was nope. sick and I'm tired and stupid today, yeah. so... So I guess I'll uh, I'll call sign us off for the day. Oh sure. Oh, and and I want to thank very very much the people who uh, wrote in today with your comments, Anatoly yes. and uh, Robert and Joe and um, Ori. Thank you guys so so much. We love to hear from yeah. you, and they were insightful, interesting comments that provoked a lot of conversation. Yes, they are, and we'd love to hear from the rest of you. You can get in touch with us on the web at squarefm.demodulated.com by email, squarefm at demodulated.com, or on Twitter at squarewavesfm. Or if you just yell real loud, <laughs> beep, we'll hear you. <laughs> beep. Beep. So send us any thoughts you have, whether it's about previous uh, podcast, this one, and um, just a heads up for all our listeners. Mm -hmm. We know a few of you, a couple of you have fallen behind. We have a, we plan on not podcasting for the last two weeks of the year, and we will resume in January. Mm -hmm. But we do have uh, two or three more coming up after this one, so it sounds like we might be going to episode forty-five before we call it a year. Give everyone a chance to catch up, and even send us in some more letters. Mm -hmm. So for those of you who haven't caught up, this is just a uh, heads up to let you know what our plans are. And so you, so we're going to be taking the last two weeks of twenty fifteen off come up with some fresh ideas for the new year and uh, hope you guys uh, have a chance to catch up and uh, have and uh, maybe have your own suggestions on what you'd like us to talk about. Yeah, that's right. If you ever want to be a guest or if you just want to give us ideas on what we can chat about, we're all ears. But uh, we've got no shortage of topics in the can. And I think we have every week booked up until that second, third last week of uh, December already. So uh, it's such a pleasure to have you all listen to us. It's a great pleasure to have you participate with us. We love you all. 
and uh, have a good week. We'll talk to you next time. Okay. Sign out, suckers. Yeah, see you later, you... You, you... Uh, I'm too st sick and stupid. Yes, you see, are. See, uh, I don't know. Lick my dorsal fin, you <laughs> saltwater sea witches. <laughs> Bye. Bye.